How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I was happy to see in the Discord, uh, if, if anybody's not following in Discord, Todd, um, the uh, conversation <laughs> in out. cinema, yeah, in cinema shock <laughs> about theater seat choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I'd been wondering if it was just me, because with old age, it's it's been a problem that I either pick like the handicapped, like the aisle behind the handicapped section so yep, that so I you can, can put your leg up. Yep. So I can put my leg up or at least, at least stretch my leg out. Because if I'm not, what there, happens if there's a wheelchair in. there? Well, no, because they're further <laughs> up. I mean, there's there's still there's still a space like a walkway there, but you can stretch yeah. your leg out over the rail or you have to pick the end because a you can stretch your leg out into the aisle. And I have to pee more often than I used to. And I thought it was just me, but no, it's not just you, Gary. We're old. We're getting old. Our bladders are getting weaker. Uh, I, I strategically pee uh, when I get to the movies, when I get to the theater before getting in line for, for uh, concessions. And then I go, I pick up my seat, I put my stuff down and then I try to force myself to go pee again before the movie starts so that I won't have to get up during it. Hi, kids. I'm Todd A. Davis from Cinema Shock. I'm here to talk to you about rectal health. Rectal health is one <laughs> of the Wait a minute. This is not you. I'm talking about pooping. I'm talking about pooping. No, I'm talking about pooping. Yeah. <laughs> now it's my turn. <laughs> Where's your preferred movie theater seat in the theater? Where in the room is your, your preferred seat, Todd? Uh, I like to, I, I like to get somewhere in the middle. I don't mind sitting in the middle of a row. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer the middle. I prefer smack dab middle of the theater, honestly, if I can, because right. I, this is what I was saying in discord is that, um, that's where the sound mix is sort of mm-hmm. designed exactly. for, uh, I, when I was a kid, my dad always, like, we always wanted to sit in the back of the theater and the sound sucks in the back of the theater because yeah. all of the, because all of the speakers are in front of you. Right. Yeah, there's nobody uh, behind you that can like kick your seat, but all the all the speakers are in front of you facing inward, and true. it's the worst place in the theater for sound. Either the the, the front row, well, the front row is actually better. The, the back uh, row is for making out and blowies, and that's yeah. I mean, I don't know what you and your dad were doing in the movie theater, but <laughs> we're doing that. <laughs> I, so I like I like the middle, but I I more uh, more recently try to go between the middle and like the middle third. Just because mm-hmm. I do, I, I like the, I like being able to lean my head back. I, that sounds weird, but like, no, I, I, like, I, prefer, I like that it's a big, big screen. I want to be able to. Exactly. Exactly. Not, I prefer cra- to be close my neck, but like look up a little bit. I want to be closer. Like the, the, the first row of the stadium seat where Gary's talking about is mm-hmm. probably the best seat in the house to me, yeah. though. Sometimes I'll pick it when, you know, when I'm picking my, my seats online, I'll pick some, if there's somebody near that, I won't pick there because I don't, I prefer not to sit near anybody because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm antisocial and right. because I've just had a, too many bad movie theater experiences. Uh, <laughs> but I prefer to sit closer because yes, I want, 
I'm in a movie theater for an immersive experience. Yeah. And I want that screen to take up the, the majority of my field of vision mm-hmm. without, you know, having to go to the chiropractor afterwards. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Good. We're on yeah, the same if, page. So when it, me and you go, just, the, just the keep in mind time. that, just keep in mind that if you pick it, it'll never heal. Oh, geez. <laughs> what? That was, uh, the ice is going to break. Oh, I was wondering how long it would I, I'm take getting it out of the way right now. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about breaking the ice. Yeah, <laughs> we did it. We did it right now with this discussion about movie theater seating. So, uh, well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock. I'm, uh, wait, I'm, I'm the podcast that explores <laughs> this is the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films i'm one of the hosts and my name is gary horn and i'm co-host justin bishop and i'm todd a davis shaking hands kissing babies then using them as human shields wherever i go welcome <laughs> and thank you for joining us for this kreskin-esque episode which is part six of our current series titled the new flesh the body horror of david cronenberg the what-esque Kreskin-esque. Kreskin? Kreskin? Kreskin, yeah. You don't know Kreskin? No, what is that? Kreskin was a mentalist who became famous for all his appearances on The Tonight Show in the 1970s. Well, shit, Todd, how old are you? (laughs) (laughs) I thought you said Crispin-esque, and I was like, is Crispin Glover in this movie? No, 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 Uh, Kreskin. K-R-E-S-K-I-N. He definitely stopped. With Crispin Glover. He was active between 1907 and 1982. Is that... No, no, that's wow. for the TV psychic Chriswell. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Chriswell. Yeah, he's in uh, Plan Nine from Outer Space. I know him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was he yeah, was Kreskin. popular. Kreskin was popular in the seventies. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Imagine if Crispin Glover was in this movie as Johnny Smith instead of Christopher Walken. <laughs> he'd he'd, <laughs> he'd have kicked everybody in the face. By the way, Kreskin's <laughs> still alive, eighty-seven years old. Uh-huh. Oh, good for him. Yeah. Good for him. So, also still alive, we've... Christopher Walken. Yeah, he's still kicking. What what episode? This is episode six of seven. So we're almost mm-hmm. done with our our series on David Cronenberg. And the last one we talked about, Cronenberg's most recent film, Videodrome, we uh, talked about it on our last episode. It was released in February of 1983. And uh, just for a little recap, if you forgot since two weeks ago when we released an episode of, or for some <laughs> reason you haven't listened to it, but are still listening to this one, um, Videodrome, you know, despite high expectations, it was kind of a box office flop. Uh, it brought in less than half of its nearly $6 million budget at the box office. It brought in 2.3 or something like that. It, like very, very low uh, box office numbers for a movie that wasn't really high, <laughs> a high budget anyway. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a, it was a disappointment. This was a movie that was supposed to be Cronenberg's kind of big breakthrough. Uh, it was a movie that he had the support of a major Hollywood studio and it was supposed to like kind of bring him towards the mainstream a little bit more. He's been inching towards it ever since probably at least the brood or especially scanners. He's been inching towards the mainstream. This was supposed to be the movie that, I mean, he had Debbie Harry and a big star, you know, at the time. uh, And that didn't really happen. Well, it's because it it, it crisscrossed with the big uh, Hollywood movement of VHS belly pussies uh, (laughs) that they were working on. And, just it fell flat so i don't know belly pussies know new band name i call it tummy pussies <laughs> tummy pussies. vhs tummy. belly pussies <laughs> but in, it, so that never really happened 
it didn't it didn't become his commercial breakthrough that he was expecting it to be or that everyone was expecting it to be. But the good news is that that didn't really have a chance to hurt Cronenberg's career prospects, because by the time that Videodrome hit theaters, Cronenberg was already a month into filming his follow up feature. So it didn't it didn't keep him from getting um, his next job because he already had his next job ready to go and he was already working it. Uh, and that was a film that would, in fact, end up being the big mainstream breakthrough that it was hoped that Videodrome would be. The film we're talking about is uh, also unique in that it is Cronenberg's first adap- adaptation of a pre-exi- of pre-existing material, uh, something that if you look over his filmography going forward is kind of a regular occurrence. I, I was looking over his basically every movie he's made past this and only I think two of those movies are not based on a pre-existing work of some kind after after this. Because of course the movie we're talking about, you know, next week the fly is based on a pre-existing movie. Um, but most of them are based on books or plays, mostly books, with the exception of existence and I think Cosmopolis, but don't quote me on that. One of one of his later ones is also. Uh, an original script from him, but everything else is based on something else going forward. This particular movie that we're talking about though, is it was one of a rash of projects based on the work of Stephen King that were being released in their early 1980s. I mean, this was the golden age of Stephen King adaptations. Oh yeah. And and this movie was a big part of that. And the movie we're talking about is of course the dead zone. If the future were in your hands, Taurus is great. The house is burning. Would you change it? Hurry up! Hurry up! It's not too late. Touch this man's hand, and you are in the grip of the dead zone. I've had another episode. Only the imagination of author Stephen King could take you there. Johnny, wait. With a power that alters the future lives of those you love. You want to kill your own son? I want you out of here. I'm scared, Dad. Or of those you fear. I have had a vision that I am going to be president of the United States someday, and nobody, I mean nobody, gonna stop me. Is it a power for good or for evil? If God has seen fit to bless you with this gift, you should use it. Bless me? You're a devil. Stephen King, The Dead Zone. The ice is going to break! (laughs) Twice. 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 Let's keep a count. I'm going to kill it. Todd, I don't know if you were saving it for later, but (laughs) if you were going to do like a Johnny has the keys. No, there's I've so got, much I've you could do. Else. I there's, was wondering. I was wondering. The main character is named Johnny. There's so know, many options. I <laughs> well, I was wondering if all of us were going to end up doing a Christopher Walken impression at some point. Justin, do you have one? I don't have one, but I no. knew. I knew coming into this that Gary was going to. Oh, just yeah. Overuse his Christopher Walken impression. Listen, I wasn't. <laughs> I figured it would happen at some point, but I was going to be conscious of it. Like I was. <laughs> but I mean, Gary, the ice Gary, is going I love to break. it. I, I, don't I know love it, many, and I'm going to encourage you to use it more. <laughs> I uh, I don't know how many uh, reviews I read for the uh, "Somebody Needs a Nap" section that just that was the title of the review was "The Ice Is Going to Break." And so I'm like, all right, this is a thing. And I'm just going to get it out of the way right up top. Would you, would you do all the readings of the, of the, someone needs a nap in the Christopher Walken impression? Oh, please do. Oh my God. (laughs) We can try. Yeah. I'm I'm for it. Well, every, well, listeners, you have that to look forward to in about an hour. So (laughs) 
All right, so by 1979, when the Dead Zone novel was released, Stephen King was already on his way to becoming the phenomenon that we know him as now. So the, the, the Dead Zone was King's seventh novel, the fifth one published under his real name. He had done a few under uh, the name of Richard Bachman. Uh, but while his previous books were successful, the Dead Zone was his most popular yet. Uh, it was the first to rank among the 10 best-selling novels of the year in the U.S., the first to appear as a New York Times bestseller. Like this was, you know, a legitimate hit for Stephen King. Not long after it was published, Lorimar Film Entertainment bought the rights and began developing a film adaptation. So at that time, Brian De Palma's Carrie was actually the only King adaptation that had been released. Uh, but it was such a smash hit that it not only solidified King's career as a novelist, but made his other works hot properties. And I'm not going to get really into the history of Stephen King too much here. Uh, I, I think that might be something we save maybe for a, a carry episode down the line. I was going to say, probably but, despite how much you probably want to. I know. I, I, really, say, I, the restraint I would do a whole Justin. podcast about, about Stephen King. <laughs> if you don't know Stephen King's history, like Carrie, when it came out in, in hardback, was not a huge hit. Uh, it did. It did okay, but there's only there's there weren't a lot of hardcover copies of Carrie published. In fact, if you can find a first edition Carrie hardcover, it is worth an incredible amount of money because there were so few. But when it got adapted into Brian De Palma's film, it made the book incredibly popular. So the paperback sales of Carrie are actually what made Stephen King's career. Like that, like he owes his career to Brian De Palma's adaptation of Carrie. So he's always got that, that movie connection. That's cool to know. Yeah. So later in 1979, the second King adaptation, Salem's Lot, directed by Toby Hooper, was released as a television miniseries. If you want more info on that, I guess go and listen to our entire episode that we did on Salem's Lot uh, back early on in Cinema Shock history. Yeah. Uh, but in between the years of uh, between 1979, when the rights to the Dead Zone were purchased and 1983, when the film was eventually released, several other King adaptations had been released, including Stanley Kubrick's The Shining in 1980, George Romero's Creep Show in 1982. We did an episode on that one as well. And Louis Teague's Cujo. Uh, in early 1983. And by the time the year was over, John Carpenter's adaptation of Christine would also be released uh, a mere six weeks after The Dead Zone. It came out in December of that year. Nice. And uh, and then a couple more would come out later. Uh, I think the following year was, uh, I know Firestarter came out the following year. I feel like there was even another one in 1984. Anyway, there are a lot of Stephen King stuff coming out around this time. So the, the point being that Stephen King was a hot property at the time of the Dead Zone's release. Like, he was at the top of his game. Mm. Yeah. I didn't realize how rich that motherfucker might be. Like, like I don't Stephen know. Stephen King? Yeah. The, mo the most successful American author in history? Well, right. I just, I just, I mean, yeah, I just, I don't know. It just, I, I was seeing the stuff about, you know, for, like, he was a writer in residence at the University of Maine. So imagine being a college student and then, he gets a, a deal for like Firestarter Cujo and this one for mm -hmm. like $2 million yeah. uh, with new American. I Library. think he was, he was still a, a teacher when he got the deal for this, I believe. Right. Yeah, I believe that's right. And this was 1977. So, and I just literally looked this up. So adjusted for inflation, like today's money, uh, 1 million is about 4,681,000. So we're talking 10, $10 million. Yeah. For these three the equivalents. So like, yeah. yeah, and it's just, that's, that's insane to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, and then it was like his first. Uh, this one was actually his first, you know, New York Times hardcover bestseller, and then like that. I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting. Also thought it was interesting because I went down a rabbit hole, and I'm not going to spend any time talking about this guy because I think he's been thoroughly pretty debunked. But this Peter Herkos guy is what he based the the novel on. Uh, was a I don't psychic. know anything about this. Oh, oh yeah, he was a he was Johnny was supposedly inspired by this guy. He was a psychic detective, and uh, he like real life, like real life, real life guy. Yeah, okay. and then he got like TV shows and stuff. But like okay. he uh, he he helped with the Boston Strangler case and stuff like oh. that, and supposedly kind of detailed what the guy looked like and stuff like that. Just kind of interesting. But that that was like one of his inspirations here. His other thing what, was like what, uh, what's the guy's what's the guy's name again? Peter Herkos, uh, H-U-R-K-O-S. Interesting. But, but he also said that his real interest in the story would be that, like, if you had the power to, like, touch people and read them, that you would actually be rejected. It would be more of a curse than it would be a blessing most of the time. Yeah. Um, you know, some X-Men shit. He also had an interest in the religious stuff, which I saw a bunch of reviewers get, and I didn't think about it that much, even though I like uh, you know, connecting things to religion and all that sort of thing. But uh, I saw I saw an interview with him in the Minneapolis Star in 79. Um, he said, I see a correlation between the religious idea and the psychic idea, since they are both a sort of struggle for power by people who are powerless. I don't know. I think I think the, the religion aspect of it, I, I haven't read the book. You probably have, Justin, but apparently there's more religious stuff in the book. There's a lot there more religious in stuff in the book, especially in relation to Johnny's uh, mother she she kind of becomes a religious nut in the five years that he's in a coma uh, which mothers with a religious crazy streak for lack of better term are a uh, a pretty common occurrence in Stephen King's books if you've seen Carrie even the movie then you know what I'm talking about but that is that is uh, I don't know what went on in Stephen King's life with his own mother <laughs> that, that spawned that but it's a, it's a pretty regular thing yeah, I, I'm even thinking of like the mist with that chick. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah, there, there's like a lot of religion stuff and Stephen King stuff. But uh, oh, yeah, I also thought it was funny. I was I so I, I know we're not talking about Stephen King, but I also just thought it was I funny. mean, we're going to be talking about Stephen King. It's <laughs> <This is, this laughs> um, an episode, but I, I read a lot this time around about because I'd never thought about it before, but just how he was how other writers felt about Stephen King, you know, I thought and, he was a hack almost or or like. You know, his his books were not at the time seen as like literature. You know, this was he was writing fluff uh, compared to what a lot of quote unquote intellectuals, you know, writers and literary people thought. You know, they did. They, 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 they kind of looked down on him a little bit. Could you say he's almost I mean, obviously not just the way you described it, but like to me, I was thinking of like a Spielberg or something. Um, yeah, you know, making like something for the, for the masses. Yeah. yeah, he's making stuff for the masses. But I don't know that that was ever his intention. That's just sometimes people's their style just uh, people gravitate towards a little bit more, you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with writing that kind of stuff. I, I'm a I mean, I mean, obviously a huge Stephen King fan. I think we've talked about it on the show before. I mean, uh, he is my favorite writer. I own almost every book of his in hardcover. Like I've got a Stephen King shelf in my living room. <laughs> you know, like I'm a huge Stephen King fan. Um, and I think it's because he does write things that are incredibly entertaining and he's got bad books. There are bad Stephen King books. I'm not going to pretend there's not. There's bad Steven Spielberg movies, you know, but they're few and far between they're at least going to be entertaining. Even if they're not his best, they're going to be entertaining. 
And uh, but they do appeal to the masses because of his style of writing, I think. And and I'll get into this a little bit later on this episode. But I think one reason that his his books appeal to people so much is because there's so much more to them than their hook. Like Carrie is not just about a girl with psychic powers. It's about her psychological struggle and the way that she relates with her mother and it, his books mm. are all based in character, right? And, they, and they, they might have some very outrageous things that happen, but he always focuses on the people first. And I think that the best Stephen King adaptations are the ones that remember that. And the mm. majority of Stephen King adaptations do not. I saw like one review with a guy named like Ed Gorman, who was like a famous author himself and yeah. uh and but it used to be a literary um critic i believe right? yeah but yeah yeah he was and and so in the review he was like going over i can't remember if it was the dead zone or not but i remember him saying about king it was just like he, he would be perfectly hateable <laughs> that he gets away with this so much if if he weren't so good at it right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so when development began on the dead zone movie adaptation David Cronenberg was not attached to it and would, in fact, not join the project until well into the planning stages. So when it started as a as a project, producer Kara Baum, she worked for Lorimar, who had the rights. She gave the book to screenwriter, a guy named Jeffrey Bohm, and asked him to write a screenplay. Now, Bohm at the time, he only had one screen credit as a writer. It was a 1978 film called Straight Time starring Dustin Hoffman, pretty well regarded, did pretty well. Uh, but he would go on, if you look at his career, and, and some of these that I'm going to name, he he kind of script doctored or did rewrites on somebody else's script. But he went on to, to write on films like Joe Dante's Inner Space, uh, The Lost Boys, you know, Joel Schumacher, uh, mm-hmm. Funny Farm. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon 2 and 3, The Witches of Eastwick. Uh, He also co-created the TV show, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. People our age probably remember that. Of course, we're big (laughs) Bruce Campbell fans. So, you know, I love Briscoe County Jr. But yeah, that that was his TV show. He co-created it with Carlton Cuse, who was the co-creator of Lost. Nice, nice. So I knew Todd was going to say nice. So I said nice first. (laughs) But this this is early on in his career when he gets this gig. And not long after he began developing a script, director, uh, a guy by the name of Stanley Donan joined the project. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that name, Donan is the director behind some of the greatest musicals ever filmed, including my personal all-time favorite musical, Singing in the Rain. Uh, He'd also directed Charade, which is another personal favorite of mine. If you haven't seen it, it's Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. Uh, It's an incredible movie, Charade. Uh, And later he started working with some like genre stuff. Uh, he got kind of away from the musicals as he's got got older and did some genre stuff, including the cult favorite Bedazzled, the Dudley Moore version, not the remake with Brendan Fraser, I think, was in it. Yeah, but the original no, it, version it of Bedazzled. <laughs> yeah. His version of the film was to be produced by Sidney Pollack. Sidney Pollack's a big director, especially at this time. Uh, he directed Jeremiah Johnson, which is written by John Melius. You know, that was his first big project. Uh, Three Days of the Condor. Like this was an Oscar winner. Sidney Pollack was going to be producing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and reportedly, Carol Baum, the producer, had asked Cronenberg to direct the film around this time based on the strength of the brood. Uh, before finding out that Donan had actually already signed a contract to direct. So I guess they were kind of courting them both at the same time. And and uh, Donan joined. He, he, he said yes sooner, I guess. Uh, there's also there are also some reports that 
uh, depending on who you ask, like Cronenberg says that they asked him early on and he just said no. But so I guess it depends on who you ask. Either way, he wasn't attached to it this early on. So a Stanley Donan version of the Dead Zone would have uh, undoubtedly looked very different from the film that we would eventually get, uh, but it was wasn't meant to be. So due to a string of financial disasters, including uh, William Friedkin's Cruising, I don't know if you guys have seen that, but it's a really great movie with Al Pacino. I, I would highly recommend it. But at the time, it was an expensive movie. It was a star vehicle for Al Pacino. Uh, and William Friedkin was, you know, hot off of the exorcist, but it did not do very well. Hmm. So due to a, a string of financial disasters, like cruising Lorimar, they decided to close down their feature film division, which sort of forced Donan on to, to kind of move on to other projects. Other directors who were considered over the course of the film's development were Michael Cimino, who directed the deer hunter starring Christopher Walken, uh, among others, and John Badham, who, of course, Cinema Shock listeners might recognize as the director of Blue Thunder. Oh, yeah. Look at all these connections and how yeah. fun they are. I saw Donan, for some reason, like in his script, it's probably best that he didn't do it, but he he didn't he didn't want to, like, deal with Johnny's visions. Like, he I don't didn't want to show them. Yeah, he didn't want to show them. That's what it was, which is a yeah, weird which, which I feel like would have just been silly because it would have just been whoever ended up playing Johnny in his version, just like freaking out like like you said like (laughs) without you actually saying it it would have been really silly i think honestly another thing i saw was really interesting was he was he was gonna move the the you know johnny's character to like a college professor so he was like looking at it was scouting in the u.s and like they had landed on like chapel hill in north carolina which is just interesting for us carolina people but yeah yeah but that carol uh bomb too just for the record too this was pretty early for her she's a she's been a workhorse producer but she she will get to work with uh david cronenberg later on dead ringers oh nice i didn't realize that when donan leaves the project and lorimar kind of shuts things down the dead zone goes into limbo for a year or so until super producer dino de laurentis bought the rights and began to develop the project on his own Uh, i feel like we've talked about dino here on the show before i feel like he's had some connections to some other movies we've talked about and we'll surely talk about him a lot in the future i mean this is the guy you know he did uh conan the barbarian for example and oh yeah uh, he's one of the most prolific producers hollywood's ever seen well he'll always be an angel to me just for (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah well just for his connections to everything i love so yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, but De Laurentiis, he didn't like Boehm's original script, and he asked Stephen King to actually adapt his own novel, but then he reportedly rejected that script as being too involved and convoluted. I think that Stephen King probably, from what I've, I've read, kind of kept the structure of the novel, which we'll get into in a minute, uh, a little bit more, which made, which just doesn't work in a movie, the way that that novel is structured. Cronenberg, hmm. however, says that after he was brought on as the director of the film, He was actually the one who decided not to use King's script because he found it needlessly brutal. This is coming from the guy who exploded a man's head in (laughs) scanners. (laughs) Which which is interesting. Um, And it was too brutal for him. (laughs) Yeah. I actually found another quote from Cronenberg where he said, Stephen King's own script was terrible. It was not only bad as a script. It was the kind of script that his fans would have torn me apart for doing. It was basically a really ugly, unpleasant slasher script. The Castle Rock killer in the middle of the movie becomes the lead. And it was, let's show a lot of his victims. Right. Uh, And Bohm 
uh, also agreed with that. And that quote from him, I saw, he said he, uh, quote, Stephen King had missed the point of his own book. Yeah, I read that as well. I read that same quote as well. Uh, De Laurentiis also commissioned a script from Andrzej Zulawski, uh, the Polish film director responsible for the 1981 horror film Possession. And uh, De Laurentiis disliked that script as well, although I couldn't find details as to why. Zulawski, for the record, thinks it was the best thing that he had ever written. So I I would really be curious to find a copy of that script. It would be interesting. So at at this point in the development, De Laurentiis realized that if he wanted this movie to get made, because it was kind of stalling at this point, that he needed somebody to oversee it. He needed to bring on a producer. So enter Deborah Hill. Uh, Deborah Hill, of course, uh, she got her start in the industry by producing and co-writing John Carpenter's original Halloween in 1978. And she'd worked with De Laurentiis on Halloween 2 and 3, which he produced. So as fate would have it, Deborah Hill was visiting, she was in Hollywood, visiting director John Landis at Landis's office on the Universal lot. David Cronenberg happened to be in Hollywood doing uh, some some Videodrome business, uh, some post-production. And he'd also dropped in on Landis, who had become a friend of his. And he was actually there because he, he, according to Cronenberg, he was wanting to kind of console or Landis after uh, the recent accident on the set of Landis's portion of the Twilight Zone movie that resulted in the death of three actors, two of whom were children. And uh, I keep threatening to do a Twilight Zone <laughs> movie episode on this show. We'll get to it one day so we can tell the full story of that. But yeah, yeah geez, so please. She, yeah, it's, she's it's tragic. She had supposedly been um, talking to two directors. Uh, she, she was, or, or when she initially was approached, she, she says that she had mentioned David Cronenberg and Walter Hill as two people that she yeah, thought and were perfect. And Walter Hill, Hill would be an interesting choice for this, but I think it could work. Yeah. And he was tied up with uh, 48 hours. At the yeah. Time. He was already yeah. signed on for that. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it was kind of serendipitous that they both happened to be visiting John Landis at the same time since she was, she already kind of had Cronenberg in mind. She asked him, you know, point blank. She, she said, Hey, we're developing the dead zone as a movie. Do you want to direct it? And Cronenberg kind of like, he says like, he couldn't help but kind of laugh or smile at it because just two or three years earlier, he had actually been offered the same job by Lorimer. Remember we mentioned that before that Carol Baum had offered that to him, but uh, he, and he had turned it down. But as he put it, he said, there seemed to be connections between the dead zone and me that were unwilling to be denied. So mm-hmm. it, it almost <laughs> felt like fate. It was meant to be. So he he quickly accepted it because he had just finished filming Videodrome and he wasn't really up to the challenge of writing another original screenplay right away. He kind of liked the idea of working based on somebody else's work uh, for kind of of a change of pace, you know? Mm. So he met with Dino De Laurentiis and the deal was signed and Cronenberg would direct the film and they'd be going back. Actually, they'd be going back to Jeffrey Boehm for the screenplay because none of these other guys that they'd got King and everyone, they, none of these other screenplays were really working out. So they went back to Jeffrey Boehm to write the screenplay, although they would still go through a few drafts and revisions before all was said and done. I wonder if it had anything to do with like scanners, like maybe people just thought of like the mind fuckery of scanners and they thought this somehow I don't know. I, I was just I mean, thinking about I that. definitely see a through line there. So yeah, I, I, I would not be surprised. But King's novel, uh, if, you, if you haven't read it, it does have a very different structure than the film would end up. So in the book, King 
tells the parallel stories of Johnny Smith and Greg Stilson. Uh, Greg Stilson, the character that would eventually be played by Martin Sheen. Greg Stilson in the book, you meet him when he's 22 years old. He's like a Bible, a door-to-door Bible salesman, I think. And the first time you meet him in the book, the the, the house that he's at, like the dog kind of uh, is aggressive towards him and he murders a dog. So if there's one way to get you to not like a character immediately, <laughs> it's to have them kill a dog. Uh, but you that's how he's introduced in the books. You immediately kind of know that he's a bad dude and you kind of follow his life through his developing political career. So the the book jumps back and forth between Johnny Smith and Greg Stilson's stories and tells them parallel, as opposed to the movie, which doesn't end up giving us any, Greg Stilson doesn't even show up in the movie till well over an hour into it. So when Bohm started reworking the screenplay for Cronenberg, and Cronenberg, you know, he doesn't have co-writing credit on this, but he gave Bohm a lot of direction on like things to leave out, things to keep in, and kind of the structure that he wanted to go for. So Bohm dropped that parallel structure of the novel and he just focused the story on Johnny Smith uh, waiting until, I mean, this movie is less than two hours long, an hour and 45 minutes long, hour and 50 minutes long. So we're over halfway through the script before that Greg Stilson character ever shows up at all. And, it's then interesting. Other... and they gave it to like Martin Sheen. So you like clearly know they, they cared about the character. But... Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. But uh, uh, it's just interesting. Yeah, you can see it. I I, I, did, I never watched the TV series. I know we'll talk about that there are. But um, I wonder if like, because it feels like on, on like a regular show, you could easily do this version of it, like where they sure. bounce back and forth. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, and I haven't watched the show either. I do know that Sean Patrick Flannery plays Stilson on the show, but I haven't oh, seen wow. it. Wow. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Uh, there were other elements from the novel that were changed or discarded as well. Uh, one of the major ones being the definition of the dead zone itself. So in the book, Johnny regular, he, he refer, refers to this kind of blank area in his psychic imagery, uh, a space that can't be foretold as a dead zone. And in fact, he kind of like the way it's described in the book, it's almost like there's a black cloud in his vision that's kind of covering things up that he just can't see mm. in his visions. And then at the end of the novel, this is you know, something that, that doesn't exist in the, in the movie, but at the end of the novel, it's revealed that the dead zone has actually, there's a, he's got a brain tumor and the brain tumor is what has actually given him his power, but it also is responsible for blocking out certain areas. So here's a quote from Cronenberg where he says, I didn't think that the concept of the dead zone was very clear in the book. I wanted to make it more specific and cinematic. I never understood how the tumor concept connected metaphorically or how Johnny's condition was any different from anyone else who suffers brain damage in an accident, which I, I kind of understand that I get, I get where he's coming from. Although you do think that the, like the brain tumor concept feels very Cronenbergian, you know, this like growth in a human body that would cause this power feels like something that Cronenberg would want to keep. You yeah. almost feel like he would have fucking put like a uh, growth on <laughs> walking right, head right. yeah. or like when he uses his power, like it bulges a little bit. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Like, a, <laughs> like where was the bladder that he stuck on Christopher right. Walken's forehead? <laughs> like pulsates. So uh, Bowman Cronenberg threw out the brain tumor angle and re-envisioned the dead zone as something Johnny can't see because it's an outcome that is not yet determined, meaning that it's something that Johnny can change, which I do think that structurally and, and thematically is a, a good change. Mm. Uh, I think it works really well. 
Yeah, it works in the story for sure. Cronenberg also didn't want to use the name Johnny uh, Smith, by the way. It's because this is he's, the guy who does like <laughs> fucking Brian Oblivion and yeah, like he's got wacky names and Johnny Smith seems pretty boring for, for supposedly in the book. It does say it, 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 it makes a little quip about how uh, fake that name sounds. So it's right. self-aware at least. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Bowman approached the story as sort of a triptych. He uh, when, when he discusses King's book, he says that he found it longer than it needed to be. And said that it felt sprawling and episodic, which it is. But he used that episodic structure, breaking King's book into three distinct sections and approaching each of them as if they were acts in a play. You know, act one, act two, act three. The first act is we meet Johnny uh, pre-accident. We see the accident. And then the hospital scenes right after he awakens from his five-year coma, where he, you know, predicts the the little girl in the burning house. You know, that's Mm. all act number one. Uh, mm-hmm. The second act sees Johnny using his powers to help hunt down the Castle Rock killer. And then the third act is the confrontation between Johnny and Stilson. Uh, it's it's very distinct, you know, I, th- I think, the way that it works. Yeah. And you, you've got some other episodes here and there, in, like within the structure, like uh, the kid he's tutoring, Chris, I think is his name, you know, where where he gives his the ice is going to break his speech you know uh that's in there as well but it's not like an entire act of the film the ice is going to break <laughs> uh real quick before we move on any further though uh because I, ne- I neglected to do this at the beginning of the show i do want to acknowledge a couple of sources for this episode that were kind of integral in in some of the information that we have here uh one of those sources is an article in Santa Fantastic magazine by Tim Lucas, the same guy who was our main source for our video drum episode. In fact, in the very same issue of Fangoria where he did a lengthy set visit uh, to, to the set of the dead zone. That was a really good article. And then there's another one by Bob Martin in uh, Fangoria magazine around the time of the film's release, another pretty lengthy set visit from him, both really good. Um, the uh, the Cine Fantastique you can find in their archives on archive.org. The Fangoria one's just on Fangoria.com. They, they're, Fangoria has been slowly releasing digital versions of all their old back issues on their website. And this is one of the scans, a very high quality scan, really easy to read on their website. So if you want to go read that, it's really good. I also listened to the, uh, the commentary on the Scream Factory Blu-ray by Michael Gingold. Michael Gingold was the editor-in-chief of Fangoria for many years. He still writes for the current iteration of Fangoria, and he does a really good commentary. My God, uh, it is too much. Like, I I thought, so I was going to play commentary in the background while I worked on other stuff, and I was like, well, maybe I'll just pick up a few nuggets. That guy is just blasting facts the whole time. And I'm like, holy shit. And then the thing is, at the end of his commentary he lists his sources which are the exact same two articles that i used (laughs) which made me feel pretty good but it's definitely a lot of the same information that we're that we're going over on this i i went through i found some other articles and stuff in addition to that but his main two sources were that bob martin article and the tim lucas article as well and he gives full credit to them for his his commentary but yes it's a great commentary it's really good i i would like to see more commentaries like that I love the commentaries with the filmmakers and stuff, but I really like when they get like a film historian in there to mm. uh, to really like talk about the making of it. Because sometimes the directors don't, you know, depending on who it is, they don't go into enough detail. And the actors, especially, 
their commentaries, they, they often don't go into enough detail to where I might get one or two facts from listening to a two hour commentary, but you know, it's that, funny, that thing like was you, a gold mine. Yeah. And, and this is a, another person or another episode discussion, of course, but I, I, you get that a lot now. I'm starting to learn that like, even with, the, uh, for my, my other day job, uh, in wrestling, um, even wrestlers, you know, actors and wrestlers are, are not dissimilar. Like, you know, you try to get to them about specific details of a certain thing. They're like, man, I don't know. Like I wrestled yeah. 300 matches right. that year and I can't remember like everything yeah. that happened that day. Uh, maybe if I go back and watch it, I can try to like fire something up but well same with like if you get a david cronenberg commentary on this movie well he's trying to remember things that happened 30 years ago you right. know and then mm. well 40 years ago at this point but i think the original commentary for his was recorded in 2006 so that was still 20 plus years past the filming of this so you know uh that, i can't remember two weeks ago yeah like, same <laughs> that's what i'm starting to I've, I've been trying to like start like an audio journal because i definitely am not going to write it i thought i would write and uh i'm sorry we've deviated but anyway so i've started <laughs> an audio journal of myself to like try to like keep in mind certain things i think it was at the suggestion of todd like maybe last recording where he was like you should be like keeping up with this stuff and i'm like you're right i should and i'll forget things i know i will <laughs> I, I fucking was late to this recording because I forgot where my phone was. So, <laughs> so definitely I should record immediately after I do things. <laughs> All right. So uh, moving on. So working with Dino De Laurentiis was far different than what Cronenberg had been used to when he had worked with, you know, Pierre David and Vic Victor Solniki, you know, the guys that he had worked with on most of his previous films. Uh, De Laurentiis is a notoriously hands-on and highly opinionated producer. And on the dead zone, he insisted on having the final say on the film's main cast members. Cronenberg had originally wanted Hal Holbrook for the role of Sheriff Bannerman, a choice that De Laurentiis immediately vetoed because he had never heard of the actor, despite the fact that by this time, Holbrook had won a Tony, had won multiple Emmys, and had become internationally famous for his role as Deep Throat in All the President's Men. Not to mention, he was about to be in um, Creepshow. <laughs> so so yes. he has some genre cred as well. Was he just... in Haddonfield, Illinois? Was he a part of <laughs> Halloween? <laughs> that he was not. So Dale Aaron just didn't know who he was. But he had already won like Tony's for his Mark Twain show. Remember, we talked about his Mark Twain show back on our Creep Show episode. Like he was fairly well known, but Dino De Laurentiis didn't, apparently didn't know who he was. So he turned that down immediately. So as a compromise, Tom Skerritt was selected for the role, which is fine. I mean, Tom Skerritt is great. He's got some genre cred as well, because this is only a couple years after Alien. You know, my, so my biggest fucking disappointment from this movie was when Tom Skerritt's name uh, came up during that extended fucking intro that this movie has that a lot of people love. Uh, I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it does last like 10 minutes. And uh <laughs> And, uh, it was actually those opening credits were made by the same company that did the opening credits for alien that is correct you're right yeah. uh <laughs> like we're like we're playing trivia now um <laughs> but i saw tom scarrett's name and i was like legitimately uh i don't know i know that i've seen this movie but it was back in the same days that i was in like a shitty house in a historical neighborhood where you came to rescue me from on halloween from watching jaws 4 yeah. uh, it was like around that same time <laughs> i remember i watched the dead zone then but 
anyway, I saw Tom Skerritt's name pop up on the uh, opening stuff. And I was like, shit, Tom Skerritt. I love that guy. And it was the biggest disappointment to find that he is really like 10 minutes of screen time. Yeah, he doesn't. He's yeah. not in it a lot, but he's good. <laughs> and he's an important, a very important role yeah. in the film. So for the role of Johnny Smith, the film's protagonist, one actor that was considered, I don't know how much he was considered, <laughs> but uh, Bill Murray, who was for some reason, Stephen King's first choice for the role. Uh, I don't know what Stephen King saw in Bill Murray that made, and let me say Bill Murray is one of my favorite actors of all time. So this is not me shitting on Bill Murray. I love Bill Murray, uh, but I don't know what Stephen King saw in him as Johnny Smith. Cause at this time, Bill Murray had never done a dramatic role. Now he kind of bounces back and forth. Although even his dramatic roles now still have this kind of sardonic, like, humor that bill murray is known for i'm literally them. i'm literally trying to picture him right now i can't picture a scenes. single scene in this movie well where i think bill murray would work well i think you should get the kid out of here the ice is gonna break <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's actually pretty good <laughs> nice <laughs> Oh man. But anyway, that, I don't know that, that I don't know that Cronenberg or De Laurentiis ever gave any real consideration to Bill, Bill Murray. I think Stephen King just was like mentioning, they're like, Oh yeah, we'll think about it. <laughs> so, but Cronenberg himself wanted Nicholas Campbell. Nicholas Campbell had, uh, he'd been one of the main characters in fast company. He was in the brood. He's um, Oliver Reed's like assistant in the brood. So he's got a small role in that, but uh, Cronenberg wanted him as, Johnny, but De Laurentiis wanted a bigger star, which I totally understand. Uh, Campbell, of course, he did end up getting cast in the film as the Castle Rock killer, Frank Dodd. So he's got a, still a pretty significant role that I think he's very good and very creepy in. As oh, he's well. perfect because he's dead inside. It works. He, yeah, he it works. It, he he looks super. There's something about the the way he plays the role that he really does seem like a guy who has no. He, he like a guy who doesn't make the distinction between right and wrong. There's something behind his eyes that that just plays. And yeah. honestly, the, the creepiest scene in this whole film, and uh, I, I, I just not to get ahead of myself, but I don't consider this a horror film, uh, but the creep, there is a horror esque sequence. And it's the sequence where they visit the Dodd home and his mother is there and they, they walk into that house and Mark Irwin, you know, the way he filmed that scene looks very different from the rest of the film because there's this like green glow over everything this like green light that doesn't really make sense but it makes the whole scene feel icky and gross yeah. you know like like gary when he watches the matrix like how gary feels the entire time but everything's a little <laughs> bit green i thought you were uh, gonna say like the, like gary icky and gross icky and gross icky and gross <laughs> like gary <laughs> but uh and then the, the scene where frank dodd commits suicide is Ugh. the biggest like shock moment of the film even though you don't see anything except for that one little twitch at the end afterwards which is pretty disturbing where he's got the the, the scissor like in his mouth and then cronenberg cuts away like it's one of those things where it's like, you know, what's happening and what's in your imagination is worse than what they could actually show you. You know, I, I was literally about to say, I mean, the, 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 I, that shows you the sign of a good director, I suppose, because the restraint mm -hmm. that he shows there uh, for what he needs to tell you. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're just like, this seems fucking awful. Yeah. And that's <laughs> all you need. Shown it. It's just the setup. He yeah. could have shown it, but it, it's not necessary. You right. know, that's not this kind of movie. Yeah. Oh, Campbell, of course, was one of several 
regular Cronenberg actors to appear in supporting roles in the film. Also making appearances were Peter Dvorsky, who plays Harlan in Videodrome. Remember the, um, I, I when, when I was watching Videodrome, I kept thinking of him as, I don't know, like dollar store um, Jeffrey Combs. <laughs> For some reason, he just, <laughs> this is what he seemed like to me. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, yeah. He had a Jeffrey Combs thing in that movie, more so than in this movie. But in here, he plays a TV reporter, the guy who, um, Christopher Walken gives that great speech to when he's in front of the, the room of reporters, you know, where mm. he says like, I'm mm-hmm. going to die. You're going to die. You want to know if you're going to die tomorrow. You know, it's a great speech. It's really good. Uh, but that that's him. That's Peter Dvorsky. Uh, Les Carlson, who was the main bad guy in Videodrome, of course, here he plays a newspaper columnist. And that's actually a scene that got added in later on uh in the shoot it wasn't in the original script he's the guy who's getting blackmailed by stilson they've got pictures of him with a woman Mm -hmm. Uh, that scene was actually requested by paramount of all things it was a studio note uh but it works really well because it's like a scene where they they kind of wanted to see earlier on that stilson is a shady figure you know Mm -hmm. they felt like they needed to establish that and i honestly a lot of times we 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 shit on like dumb studio notes but i think they made a good decision there and i like that when Cronenberg decided to comply, he brought in one of his regular actors in a very different role for the scene. Yeah. Uh, And even Cindy Hines, the little girl from the brood is in here. She's one of John. She's one of the kids that Johnny tutors. Uh, She's reading uh, sleeping beauty in a scene. She's only in the one scene, but that's her. Uh, We, I guess we haven't really mentioned it, but as Johnny himself, we didn't get Nicholas Campbell, but we got Christopher Walken. And I'm not really sure how uh, Christopher Walken got, attached to this i don't know i, I th- there there are no like fun cool stories uh, regarding yeah i couldn't attached. find anything either it was yeah. just like you know he probably got sent the script by his agent and a, and auditioned for it i'm not sure but walken uh you know i don't think we've talked about him on the podcast yet but walken uh, he'd been acting for most of his life he began his career as a child actor in the 1950s Uh, But as far as feature films go, his career really began to take off in the 1970s. He'd had some small roles in Sidney Lumet's The Anderson Tapes, uh, Woody Allen's Annie Hall. He's got a small but significant role in that. Uh, Michael Winter's The Sentinel. But then in 1978, he had a star-making role in Michael Cimino's The The Deer Hunter, uh, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. If you have not seen The Deer Hunter... Um, I would highly, highly recommend it. It's an incredible film. You will if you be want very to feel sad. good about life. <laughs> you will be very sad when it's over, but it's a great film. Uh, and Christopher Walken is incredible in it. Yeah. Uh, he's also in uh, Cimino's controversial Heaven's Gate uh, film from 1980, which is kind of the movie that is sort of known as the one who killed the whole new Hollywood movement, where all these directors were having carte blanche at, at uh, and as far as their budget and final cut goes, and that movie kind of destroyed that. I found a uh, quote from Cronenberg where he said what sold him on Christopher Walken, he said it's, it's his face. Uh, that's the subject of this whole movie. That's what this movie was about. All the things are in his face. And uh, which is interesting. Um, I, I mean, but but I'll say this. I mean, out of all the guys that, you know, we've had the discussion in previous episodes about is David Cronenberg intentionally casting these actors as the male leads that are a little detached. And Christopher Walken is absolutely perfect in that sense, like he tries at the beginning and it's, it's tough nowadays. If you're a fan of 
movies and you know christopher walken it who doesn't know who christopher walken is so you and you even know the uh the parody of christopher walken so it's hard to to separate those things when you're watching a movie but right um at the beginning he does his best job to not be the christopher walken that he is in the other half of this movie or well in the other two-thirds of this movie yeah I, Um, i agree with that and also like he's he's rarely the christopher walken that we know him as today, like the uh, more cowbell Christopher Walken. Oh, you know, yeah, this yeah. Is, <laughs> he's but, much but more he has this certain otherworldliness about yeah. him that well, he's a he, weird he dude. can't escape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he just can't escape it, but it works in this movie because yeah. the Johnny Smith that wakes up from a coma should be detached. He's, he's a right. little outside of this whole thing. Yeah. And uh, so it, it actually... I don't know, but 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 Walken's char- charisma keeps you invested, even though this guy seems totally separate from everything else that's happening around him. And I don't know that, like you know, we, we we've mentioned it before on, on previous episodes in the series about the leading men in Cronenberg's films being sort of boring, like Cameron Vale. But again, I I think that was fully intentional in that movie because, well, go back and listen to that episode for all the reasons on that. But I think you mentioned on, on Videodrome that he's definitely gotten away from that with the Max Wren character because James Wood is, is, is not like a cookie-cutter, boring character in that movie. Then you've got Walken here. You're going to have Goldblum on the next episode. You're going to have Jeremy Irons on the next one. You know, you're going to have Viggo Mortensen down the line, James Spader down the line. Like he's got some incredibly compelling characters. And I don't know if that's just an artistic choice or because as he went further along in his career, he simply had access to better actors who wanted to do his material. Yeah, that's what be, I'm curious about know. because I still feel like he's got guys that are still like, uh, again, detached. A little bit like, like I feel like the, the character not... here who feels the most like a character from a previous Cronenberg movie is Stilson's right hand man that yeah. uh that guy and and Frank Dodd yeah I would agree with that um but yeah I mean it, it works for like Cronenberg sensibilities like I feel like Walken actually really really fits here like he's yeah and even with Woods there's, there's just something about those two guys that keep you invested that I think mm-hmm. he was missing from some of the other movies that like, even though they're not normal, right. There's something about it that you can't help, but watch them. Exactly. Exactly. It, it's, it's the reason that Michael Ironside is the, the most watchable part of scanners, you know, cause right. he's a very charismatic dude and he's up against this guy. Who's kind of a blank slate. <laughs> right. So uh, another cast member, We've got Martin Sheen as Greg Stilson. We all know who Martin Sheen is. Uh, Ramon Estevez. Right? Ramon Estevez yeah. is his real name. Uh, by 1983, he was well into his career. He's fairly well known at this time. Uh, he'd been working since the 60s, mostly in television prior to that. Uh, but he'd already appeared in major film roles by this time, including Terrence Malick's Badlands uh, alongside um, Sissy Spacek. Uh, Apocalypse Now, of course, The Final Countdown, which is one of my favorite, like, under-the-radar movies from the time, uh, and Gandhi, you know, so he's been in a lot of big movies at this time, uh, and Sheen actually says that it was his sons, Carlos and Ramon Jr., who were largely responsible for him appearing in the film. He said, uh, this is all from that article I read in Cine Fantastique, he said that his, his son Carlos, in particular, was a film fanatic. So when Sheen mentioned that he'd received an offer to appear in a Cronenberg movie, as Sheen put it, he almost shit. He couldn't believe it. 
I confess that I hadn't seen any of Cronenberg's pictures, though I'd heard of them. The next day, he had two for me to watch, Rabid and Scanners. Carlos Estevez, of course, is more commonly known by his stage name, which is Charlie Sheen. Uh, Martin Sheen had actually asked Charlie to play the role of the teenager in the audience at the political rally who photographs Stilson holding up a baby, you know, the kid who takes the, the picture who is his downfall. Uh, and he actually got the part, but as Sheen explained it, he hadn't been doing very well in school at the time. He was a teenager, had not been doing very well in school. So they all kind of decided that it might be best for everyone if he didn't take time off of school to play the role. So his brother, Ramon, who is not an actor, uh, the only Sheen or Estevez son who's not an actor, he ends up playing the character instead. Uh, and then coincidentally, Sheen actually followed up the dead zone with another Stephen King adaptation, one that's not quite as good, but Firestarter the very next year. Martin Sheen's in that one, too. Charlie Sheen. It's a weird guy. He also says he's, <laughs> he's got be... uh, tiger blood in his veins. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Sheen, uh, by the way, says he has a vision of being president, and he will be. He's he the West Wing. And Dude, he's played so Kennedy. many politicians. He played <laughs> fucking Kennedy. He played John F. Kennedy <laughs> before this. So, yeah, he's just something about him is just people cast him as politicians. Uh, but the other major role in the film is Johnny's long lost love, Sarah, was played by Brooke Adams. Uh, Adams had started a career in television and low budget movies, and her most prominent roles before The Dead Zone were another Terrence Malick movie, actually, The Days of Heaven. And in the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, she and uh, she actually got the job because of Christopher Walken. They grew up together. Uh, hmm. They were friends. You know, she, they met when they were I think she was in like middle school and he was in high school. Uh, they grew up in the same area and they had uh, known each other their whole lives and they had appeared in a play together. So when they were trying to cast the role, Walken actually recommended her to Cronenberg for this role. And Cronenberg, of course, had seen her in Invasion of the Body Snatchers and thought she was perfect for it. Also perfect to mention is that if you were wondering, like I was, uh, Jackie Burroughs, who plays uh, Johnny's mother in the film, is, yes, only actually four years older than Christopher Walken. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they aged her up a little bit in the movie because I think she, Walken was, I think, 39 when they filmed this. And Which the character is considerably in the book, older, yeah. yeah. The book character is like at the beginning scenes would have been like in his early twenties. I think he's in yeah. his late twenties, you know, in the in the regular story. And so I think I actually did read that Cronenberg thought he was too old at first. That yeah. uh, he had to be sold on that he was just the right guy and just to roll with it. But yeah. But yeah, the, the lady who plays his mom was only was only 44 at the time. But they definitely aged her up because that is not a four, that is not what a 44-year-old woman looks like, no matter how hard you've had. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I don't know that any of these actors appeared in Star Trek, but Todd might be able to shed some light on that. Yes, uh, for this week's uh installment of Whom I Trekking with, uh, besides Mr. Cronenberg himself, uh Helene. You're not allowed to mention him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no more. We know David Cronenberg well, that, is a that's, that's where I've been. Re, 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 I just reduced it down to besides Mr. Cronenberg himself. That's all let, I've been let doing. Let me just say up front, if you haven't been watching Star Trek Discovery on uh, Paramount Plus, Justin, then you should be. Because I have it's, very, it's very, very good. I just started the uh, second half of the fourth season, mm, I think. Yeah. And, uh, Ah, still, still so good. It's a good yeah, show. It's very, very good. <laughs> I've got it's on my ever-growing list of TV shows that I need to watch. 
It's dope. You won't regret it. Uh, so we've got Helene Udi as uh, Weezak's mother. She was in an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Rules of Acquisition. That's season two, episode seven from 1993 as Pell. And then Mr. Anthony Zerb, who plays yeah. Roger Stewart. Yeah, he we haven't in- mentioned him, but he was also in the Matrix uh, sequels. Yeah, I've got yeah. that here. It's uh, He was in Star Trek Insurrection as Doherty. And that as was in 19- Doherty. Doherty. Yes. Uh, and that was in 1998, directed by Jonathan Frakes. Is that one of the good ones? I can't remember. Insurrection. I, Insurrection. I'm, yeah, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of it. But it's, yeah, I feel like I feel like the because uh, the the TNG movies kind of kept the like every other one is good thing that the the original yeah. ones did, right? Yeah. What are the good ones? Generations, First Contact. Uh, a lot of people don't like Generations, but they like First Contact. And I was going to say, I feel like the next like generation movies, but uh... they like, but they like Nemesis. But okay. I like, I just remember liking Generations a lot as a kid. But that's because mm-hmm. that was when I was deep in my like love of Star Trek and especially Next Generation. And it was the first one, and it was also Picard and Kirk and Malcolm McDowell. You know, right? Like, so I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I when I recently movie. rewatched all of them, that got me again. Yeah, where I was like, it's it's Picard, Kirk, and Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I I like all of them, uh, and with Insurrection being the least of my favorites. Okay, so. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Anyone else? Uh, nope, that's everybody in Star Trek. Hey, Come on, Todd. Are like... you meaning to tell me there's not one moment of number one engage? <laughs> <laughs> I would love for Christopher Walken to be in Star He's Trek at some point. Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> USS Enterprise. <laughs> this is... I like that you're... Yeah. Todd, when Todd does this, Christopher Walken, it is very specifically Christopher Walken giving the gold watch speech in Pulp Fiction, Christopher Walken. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> it's that version every single time. <laughs> so, like, you got to whisper a line here and there. Nice. <laughs> Second start of the left... I don't know. Straight on till morning. <laughs> That's nice. Final frontier. Crazy. All right, let's move These on. These are the voyages. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, so the original plan to, was to shoot the film in New England where it's set. Uh, as as all almost all Stephen King stories are not all but most of them yeah Did they call him the Castle Rock Killer I don't even remember that they said that in the movie they do yeah, yeah they do okay yeah, they okay, do. okay they call him that uh, and, and in fact the Dead Zone was the first um, Stephen King book to feature Castle Rock which became a regular setting and the sheriff um, Tom who Tom Skerritt plays Sheriff Bannerman appears in Cujo the book as the sheriff who uh spoiler alert but he does get killed by the dog <laughs> in the movie and the book oh, and the, yeah. the movie is 50 years or the book's 40 50 years old at this point so uh, i don't really well, and, and i heard that like dot is mentioned in cujo or something as dot like, is like, mentioned in cujo and a couple of other books like just in passing you know yeah, because like he's just he was like a, a serial killer in town story. yeah so it's kind of a big deal your small town had a serial killer uh yeah he is he is mentioned several times but uh yeah most stephen king books are set in new england mostly in maine uh, there are some exceptions here and there, like the Mr. Mercedes books are all set, I think, in Ohio. And one that I read, like that came out last year, year before, called The Institute, is actually set in South Carolina. So, oh, believe nice. it or not, yeah, nice. in a made-up town that doesn't exist, but still kind of neat. Anyway, um, that was a weird little tangent. So, where where was I? Oh, yes. So, the original plan was to shoot the Dead Zone in New England, but they couldn't really find a location 
with the perfect small town look that they wanted. Uh, when Jeffrey Bohm wrote the script, he described it as in the script, it says that it was set in New England as painted by Norman Rockwell. So they needed a very specific, like all American small town. Uh, and it was actually to find that all American small town, thanks to production designer, Carol Spire, uh, you know, another longtime collaborator, collaborator of Cronenberg's. She suggested that they shoot in a small town in Canada because she knew the small town. They, she felt that it had the look that they were going for. Hmm. Of course, Cronenberg wasn't going to argue that he's shot all of his films so far in Canada. He likes being in Canada. He likes bringing uh, the production to Canadian workers. You know, he likes shooting there and he likes being close to home. Uh, so it was ultimately decided that they would shoot there in a small town called Niagara on the Lake, which is about 10 miles outside of Toronto, where which is where Cronenberg lives. So this is like a 10 minute drive from his house, which is probably pretty nice. convenient for him. So they shot at Niagara on the Lake. It was shot almost entirely on location there uh, with only a small number of scenes shot on a soundstage. One of which uh, was the little girl's room that catches on fire in Johnny's first vision. Hmm. So that scene, you know, when we talk about these, these Cronenberg movies, especially Videodrome, we've talked a lot about like the, the special effects and how they were created. Obviously the special effects in this movie are going to be pretty tame in comparison to those movies especially in comparison to videodrome uh but this sequence in particular was definitely the film's most ambitious effects wise it was achieved by a, a special effects coordinator in the film john g bellew was his name uh deborah hill had selected him based on the strength of his work in halloween 3 he'd been this been the special effects guy there so for this sequence he actually envisioned doing this all in one shot. He was sure that he could do it safely, all basically with a with a, a spinning camera showing the entire room so that you knew that this little girl was truly in danger. And he he figured that he had found a way that he could do this, keeping the child safe, even having her on set with open flame. Uh, so I'm just going to read this next little bit verbatim. This is from that Cinefantastic article that was written by Tim Lucas. Uh, I was trying to just as I was reading this article, I was like, how am I going to summarize this? You know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to read this verbatim from the book because all otherwise it's just going to be me doing a Cliff's Notes version of this. So why not just <laughs> give it, give it to you in Tim Lucas's words. Do it. As this is how do it. Because Tim, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so Tim Lucas was on set when they were filming the scene initially. Mm. And he describes it saying, the camera is to start at the foot of Walken's hospital bed with a view of the hospital wall, part of the set behind him. The walls of the set are heated by bottled gas from behind made of sheet metal and wallpaper. The walls buckled and are also covered with a special paint mixture that bubbles. When the wallpaper turns to the correct shade of Brown Bellew knows that the flashpoint has been reached and the camera is signaled to make a clockwise move to the side of Walken's bed. The fire is ignited from the base of the wall in view and is controlled to spread clockwise into the set. Effects technicians ignite the furniture as the camera travels. And after its clockwise rotation, the camera holds on the full shot of a dollhouse, which melts from flames rigged to shoot up from underneath. The dollhouse is tripped to fall forward towards the camera, clearing the view of the child actor hiding in the corner closet. So that was the way that they envisioned this. Like you see the room burning, you start on, you start on walk-in, 
you turn around, you see the flames engulf the room, you end on that dollhouse, the dollhouse falls forward from the heat, and behind that you see a little girl in a closet screaming, terrified for her life. Uh, it's a pretty great shot. Uh, of course, when they're filming this, this is, could be very dangerous, so there were a lot of safeguards for the scene. Uh, first of all, there were no synthetic materials on the set so that there were no toxic fumes. Uh, the entire scene was overseen by an 11-man effects crew, and the closet where the child actor, her name's Julie Ann Heathwood, by the way, where she's sitting in this closet, uh, it actually had an emergency escape hatch. And the entire closet section was on wheels. So if they had to wheel her away, if the flames started getting too close for comfort, they could wheel the entire section of the set that she's sitting in away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also a five-man team of, uh, of firemen on set. Nice. Walken's hospital bed in the scene it worked not unlike the hollow couch that James Woods had to sit in for the stomach slit scene in Videodrome. Remember we talked about that. Uh, so from the waist down, Walken is in a hole in the bed in a fireproof area below the stage where he can also escape to if he needs to in, in the event of you know the fire getting too close. The bottom half of him that we see in the bed is, of, of course, false it's fake legs uh basically everything from the waist down well they're on fire so that's probably yeah they're on fire and you also see that um he looks like he is sweating in the scene but Mm. he's actually got his face and hands treated in an inflammable solution it's actually zell gel remember uh gary zeller the guy who did the head explosion scene from scanners he invented this stuff called zell gel and they're using it on another cronenberg movie here for christopher walken which is kind of (laughs) cool And then uh, Heathwood, she was assisted in the scene. Like she was kind of coached and made sure she was okay by the film's stunt coordinator, which is the incredibly named Dick Warlock. Gary, I have to ask you, do you know who Dick Warlock is? Oh, yeah. Trivia for Gary. I was about to say, haven't we mentioned him before? But I guess that was an old old That was on the old show. Yep. Yeah, but uh, no, he's a he's a regular John Carpenter buddy, and yeah. uh, of course he is Michael Myers in Halloween Two. Yeah, he plays Michael Myers mm. in Halloween Two. Uh, he also doubled for Richard Drivers in Jaws and Kurt Russell in The Thing. So he's, you know, yeah, he is a uh, very well respected uh, stunt coordinator. There's also um, just on a slight Dick Warlock tangent, and I, I'll be honest, I fully expected Gary to say. I'm something of a Dick Warlock myself, and I'm really disappointed <laughs> that that didn't happen. I was waiting for the. I was waiting for. I don't the know why I didn't say that. I'm, I'm disappointed <laughs> in myself, to be honest. <laughs> I was waiting for the right moment to make a uh, Dungeons and Dragons reference. I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they have a Dick Warlock in there. <laughs> but there, there is a scene that they filmed for this um, that they ended up cutting from the film that was supposed to open the movie that showed Johnny as a kid at like a, uh, at a hockey game. And it was supposed to suggest that Johnny had his powers from childhood. And he actually says something. What is he? I can't remember the the exact words uh, that he says, but he basically gives a warning that somebody's going to get hurt. And what happens in the scene is this guy's working on his, his car battery and the car battery explodes and battery acid flies all over him. And Dick Warlock was, the stuntman in that scene too mm. so anyway just a, you know we all would need a little bit of extra dick warlock content in our lives so there's an extra <laughs> little story for you <laughs> but uh it's so if you're thinking about you this firing dick warlocks out there <laughs> uh, what's it so 
there's Dick Warlock. Is there also a Dick Wizard? Is that a different thing? Is there a yeah, different there's Dick, there's Dick Dick Warlock, Dick Wizard, and Dick Sorcerer. It's, oh, and you know, Dick Witch. Uh, yes. I mean, well, sure. technically, I mean, that's just a that's that's a female wizard, but yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, Dick I've never Witch. played Dungeons Dick and Dragons. Dick, so. There's Dick Witch. There's <laughs> Dick Hag. Um. <laughs> anyway, if you're if you're listening to me describe the the fire scene and you're thinking that i don't remember christopher walken being in a hospital bed on fire well that's because they had to shoot the scene a couple more times after that uh they did it twice on the original day uh because a there was a window that was supposed to implode from the heat you know and it didn't really work on either take uh then cronenberg starts watching the dailies and realized that the set dresser had put an et doll on the dresser and you see it burning which could of course cause licensing issues they'd have to get um they'd have to get permission from universal and amblin and steven spielberg to actually use that but he also felt that like even if we could get that it's kind of distracting to the audience to see et et had just come out a couple years earlier you know Mm. so uh, it was very much in the public conscious so they ended up filming the scene again later on uh and they did it this time on an outdoor lot they rebuilt the set outdoors and this time when they redid it the hospital bed was never used so you only see walking in the little girl's bed yeah there there's so many scenes that they ended up not using in this movie and i think they're like lost to time or something but there um, are um still images from some of them but yeah not the um, entire scene there was the one where uh, Christopher Walken falls into the water with the ice skating group or something and their yeah. stuff or like he spent like three days there like diving in the water and like none of that ever got used. Well, I think that they initially, you know, they wanted to put Christopher Walken into Johnny's visions yeah. and you do see that you see it, especially in the fire scene, but you see it in the gazebo scene a little bit. You know, you see him standing there because he's overlooking it which is why he kind of freaks out afterwards saying, I, you know, I did nothing. I did nothing. I saw him and I did nothing. He goes on this kind of rant, mm. uh, but I think they felt that they were overdoing it a little bit by, they didn't want to use that gimmick too much, you know? Yeah. So I think the scene you're talking about is when he sees Chris falling through the ice, you know, his, his kid that he's tutoring and they just felt like that was, we, we got the point across by showing it these two previous times. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that the town that they uh, shot in uh, Niagara on the lake. Yeah. Um, one of the big things there, just if you're curious, cur- curious cur- things there, if you're curious <laughs> is that um, Niagara on the lake is, uh, you know, that town's still there. They, 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 they argued about the gazebo being built there and uh Cronenberg told them that it would be very temporary, easily destroyed, and they built an actual gazebo. The town relented, but uh, once the officials saw the gazebo, they loved it. And now yeah. it is still there. It's still available. Yeah. It's Queens Royal Park Gazebo. Uh, and, and you, Lots of people take their wedding photos there. You can rent it right now. <laughs> it's still, yeah. still available. Also, nice. Chris Rawkins House is still there, uh, all location. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the thing with the gazebo is that they, um, I think they had to, they had to rework it a little bit because some of the materials they used were made to be temporary. So when the, the town decided they actually wanted to keep it, 
they uh they had to like redo the roof and things like that to make it a more permanent thing but yeah cronenberg says that yeah they, they didn't want it at first and now he gets sent like a brochure from niagara on the lakes and the gazebo is like right on the front of the brochure like it's, <laughs> it's a, it, I mean, honestly like i would i would love to visit the 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 rape murder gazebo of niagara on the lakes <laughs> yeah. uh, I, no i was in why it. not get my wedding pictures taken there what i was if, looking at it kissed? i was like wow people are still right now taking their yeah. photos on that what gazebo. if we kiss in the murder gazebo from the dead zone <laughs> And uh, yeah, I saw like a recent review where somebody was like, I went there and then like uh, a priest slash minister or whatever owned the house that Christopher Walken lived in. You could go see yeah. the house and <laughs> um, uh, just uh, just kind of interesting. Also, uh, I saw this in a couple of places and I couldn't find it on like the DVDs or anything, but apparently David Cronenberg had a 357 Magnum next to him. And was uh, and this was at Christopher Walken's suggestion that during the times where he had to like do the flinches for like the visions, uh, David Cronenberg yeah. would fire that shit off. Cronenberg <laughs> mentions it in a couple of interviews on the uh, Scream Factory Blu-ray because he is very much not like a gun guy. He doesn't like guns. Uh, he's not like, but but yeah, it was suggested to him to get some some genuine reactions out of people and so yeah i I mean it was shooting blanks but yes he would he would fire a gun to make people jump sometimes (laughs) so we mentioned carol spire she was a once again one of several crew members that cronenberg brought from his previous films Uh, also back for the dead zone was cinematographer mark irwin uh a assistant director john board and editor ronald sanders Uh, but one key contributor on this one that is conspicuously missing is Howard Shore. Uh, This wasn't really Cronenberg's decision. He did not want Howard Shore. It was actually a studio mandate. Uh, They wanted a more well-known composer on the film. Uh, To De Laurentiis, he figured if they had a more well-known composer, they would sell more copies of the soundtrack album. Uh, De Laurentiis is above all a businessman. Yeah. (laughs) He can say he knows how the Halloween soundtrack sells. Right. Yeah. Uh, they initially hired a French composer named Michael, Le, uh, excuse me, Michel Legrand. But when Legrand discovered that he was only going to be given eight weeks in which to supply a full score for a 65 to 70 piece orchestra, he's like, nah, I'm out. Like, I'm, I'm not doing that. Uh, he Once he was gone, Cronenberg pitched Howard Shore again, and De Laurentiis reluctantly agreed. Uh, Shore flew to Toronto to spot the film with Cronenberg and editor Ronald Sanders. Uh, Spotting, by the way, if if you're not familiar with the term, that's where a composer and a director and often the editor will kind of pinpoint those moments in the film that will require music. So they go through the movie and they're like, okay, this, 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 and this. Uh, Legrand had spotted the film as well when he was working on it. Uh, Then Shore, Howard Shore, spent three weeks actually writing the score for the film before De Laurentiis panicked at the still unsigned contract as Shore had not signed his contract yet, and he quickly signed another composer. As Cronenberg said, uh, he said, uh, quote, the the best and most concise way of explaining what happened is that the deal wasn't able to be made. So Shore wasn't like not chosen or fired. He was basically never like officially hired on the film. Uh, There was never a contract signed. Hmm. And, you know, so the composer that De Laurentiis ended up going with was a guy named Michael Kamen. Michael Kamen had received accolades for his work on Pink Floyd, The Wall. Nice. Uh, I see Todd nodding and smiling because I know you're a big Pink Floyd fan. But yeah, he did all the orchestral stuff in that, uh, cool. as well as the 1981 film Venom, which stars Oliver Reed. 
and was almost directed by Toby Hooper before he got fired off of it because I think he was doing a lot of cocaine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, then I'm Tom Hardy and uh, Toby Hooper is a perfect combination. <laughs> Uh, he had reportedly written the Venom score in only nine days, so they knew this guy could work fast. And by the time he came onto the dead zone, he had about three weeks to deliver a completed score for the film. Uh, he, and, he works like all night long. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, the only thing I saw from Michael Kamen was that he uh, he was in London uh, working on the score. He was working on his piano in his house and said he received several complaints from his neighbors just <laughs> working uh, all hours please stop playing that music we can't sleep and it's giving my family nightmares <laughs> <laughs> the thing is like i think that this movie i think the score is really good i think michael Kamen's score is really good michael Kamen, you know he would go on to be a major composer he unfortunately passed away at a fairly young age i think he was in his 50s uh but he did you know Gosh, he did Lethal Weapon. He did Brian Singer's X Men movies. Like he's he's done some like major films. He's a uh, he's a big time composer. But I, his score is definitely much more traditional than what Howard Shore was doing at the time with other Cronenberg movies. And I think that it like it does add to the the whole vibe of the movie. A good bit. I, I mean, I think uh, this movie feels a little less Cronenbergian than many of the other films that we've talked about. That's fair. And I think a big, I think a big contributor to that is the score. It makes it feel more Hollywood. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying it's 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 considerably different than what we've heard from Howard Shore, who was much more experimental at this time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're just. You're talking a lot of shit for a guy who uh, one of his main uh, features was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which included <laughs> him working with the great Brian Adams. And he wrote everything I do. I do it for you. Did he Brian really? Adams. Yeah. <laughs> so well, the, he also the, the, the take that away from Michael Kamen. He also <laughs> did Mr. Holland's opus. And then he yeah. started like a nonprofit based on his work on that film. So he, he did good stuff. I mean, he uh, but it's just very different than what howard shore was doing mm. the canadian government has repeatedly apologized for brian adams <laughs> so i i do have to mention a couple other things about the filming while we're talking about the the actual filming of the movie one thing uh is the screaming tunnel gary in your research did you find anything about the screaming tunnel i don't i don't know that i saw that no okay so the screaming tunnel um is you, okay, you know, the, the tunnel that when Johnny starts working with Bannerman to try to find the Castle Rock killer, he mm -hmm. takes him to this tunnel. It's a very iconic scene from the movie. They go in this dark tunnel. Uh, it's a really cool scene visually as well. They apparently like um, coated the walls with like they sprayed it down with water, knowing that the cold temperatures would ice it over. So it's got this really cool reflective look to it. You know, uh, mm -hmm. this was apparently like a record cold winter in ontario which for ontario is saying something yeah. uh, when they were filming this uh so a lot so which contributes a lot to the the look of the film that like cold like gray look to it but then during filming they also had like some of their like record warm weather and they had to bring in fake snow for some scenes but anyway <laughs> during this scene it was freezing they, they you know were spraying down the walls to get that sheen from the ice on the walls it looks really cool it's a really memorable moment from the film 
Uh, it's often used on posters and things like that. I'm wearing a Dead Zone t-shirt right now that prominently features that scene on it. Does it feature uh, but, uh, Christopher Walken's collar? Yep. Look. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the tunnel that they filmed that in, I can't remember the name of the real tunnel, but it's in Niagara-on-the-Lake, and it is known by the locals as the Screaming Tunnel, which is not a place that you ever want to visit anywhere called the Screaming Tunnel. Well, that's what Todd calls his butthole. <laughs> <laughs> so a little, there are Just a, a little of, further about rectal health, kids. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of stories about the tunnel, but and they've changed over the years and got more sensational or whatever. But the gist is that there was apparently a young girl who was burned alive. Uh, whether, you know, some stories say there was a, like a house fire. Others say that her father went mad and set her on fire. That's the, probably the, le- the least sensational version of that is probably what's closer to the truth. But she, you know, at, she, she died in that tunnel. Like she was running, collapsed and died, burnt alive in this tunnel. Mm-hmm. And according to locals, it's haunted. This tunnel is haunted. And they say that when they were filming this scene, that like weird things would happen, like power would go off. Uh, their cameras started like freezing over and they had them, of course, insulated for the cold. But like everything that could go wrong during the filming of this scene, things started happening. It was and th- this wasn't something that was happening over the course of the film as a whole, but specifically while they were filming in the screaming tunnel. Wow. And it's called the screaming tunnel because people say it after midnight, you can hear the, ch- the girls screams. Oof. So anyway, God's if you want to visit hole. another cool movie location while you're visiting the Rape and Murder Gazebo in Niagara on the Lake, head visit- a couple miles down the road and go visit the Screaming Tunnel. <laughs> or Todd's Butthole. <laughs> or visit Todd's Butthole. <laughs> Which um, has also been sprayed down to get that really cool sheen. Yeah, <laughs> shiny looking. Uh, this, um, is, this is not okay. <laughs> Another fun bit of trivia from the filming. So uh, when you when you see the newscast that Johnny's watching, the one that eventually convinces him to help with tracking down the uh, the Castle Rock killer. Uh, and initially, when they filmed that, you were supposed to see like some photos of the kid, the high school student. They mentioned that she's like a sophomore in high school. You're supposed to see photos of her in the newscast. And they took photos and the girl that they took photos of was a girl named Kathy Scorsese. It's a 17 year old daughter of Martin Scorsese, who, you Mm. know, Martin Scorsese and, and David Cronenberg at this point have become friends. And she had actually spent a week on the set of the dead zone studying the art of special effects with John Bellew. So she was there to kind of learn and they decided to use her for this scene. Of course, they ended up getting cut from the film, but I thought that was a fun bit of trivia as well. That's cool. So after filming wrapped, uh, Cronenberg takes an early edit of the dead zone to New York, where he screened it for De Laurentiis and for Stephen King. Uh, After the screening, he had a long discussion with King about the film, which he says uh, proved to be pretty helpful as he continued editing, especially as he was shaping the scene where Stilson picks up the child at the political rally. So in the cut that King saw initially, John sees Stilson using the kid as a shield, but he decides to shoot anyway. And King didn't like this because he felt like Johnny was willing to shoot through the baby to get to Stilson. And while this could be seen as kind of a necessary sacrifice to save millions of people from nuclear disaster, King kind of thought it looked bad for the guy that was supposed to be the hero of the film. And Cronenberg agreed with him. 
So they edited the scene slightly. They waited until Stilson falls back and Sarah grabs the baby from him. And then they edited in the shot where Johnny fires the rifle. So uh, the, it, it appears that the child is safely out of harm's way. Uh, in, in the book and in the original script, it was actually just a random kid that Stilson used in that scene, by the way. Uh, it was on the day that they were shooting the scene, Christopher Walken actually suggested that it should be Denny, Sarah's kid. Uh, so they didn't have the same baby as before. Plus, this is several months down the line in the timeline of the film. So they kind of had to find a kid on the set who kind of looked like Denny to use in the scene. Uh, which so when you watch the credits of the film, you actually see a couple of different Denny's uh, that are credited throughout. But that was kind of an on the set improvisation, which uh, I can't imagine it any other way, honestly. Yeah. So King actually told Cronenberg that he he preferred a lot of the changes that were made to the decisions that he'd made while writing the book. So, for example, in the book, the kid that Johnny is tutoring, his name's Chuck. I think in the book, his name's Chris here. Uh, he's like a 17 or 18 year old rich kid with a Corvette and a swimming pool, uh, which is kind of a harder character to sympathize with, you know, this privileged rich kid who's got it all because his daddy's rich. So Cronenberg and Bohm decided to make him a younger kid, someone who would remind Johnny of himself at that age a little bit more. And it makes him a lot more sympathetic. Mm. Uh, also in the book, Johnny predicts a fire in a gym. Uh, which Cronenberg and Bohm changed to the hockey accident that he predicts that Chris is going to be in because he felt that the gym fire was just a little too close to the finale of Carrie, which I uh, would have to absolutely agree with. Would make perfect sense. Yeah. yeah, It seems a little redundant. So, and and King liked these changes. He thinks that Cronenberg actually improved on his original story, which is pretty high praise coming from, from Stephen King. It's not the first time he's, or it's not the only time he said that. I remember him saying the same thing about Frank Darabont's ending to the mist, uh, which is one of the more famous downbeat endings of all time in a movie. But uh, that was not the ending of the original story. And Stephen King, actually, I remember when that came out, him saying like, I wish I had written it that way. That's a much better ending than my story. Mm. The Dead Zone was released in October of 1983, just 10 days before Halloween. Uh, That was actually on purpose. They wanted to release it close to Halloween because it's a horror movie, uh, or at least it was viewed as a horror movie when they greenlit it. But, uh, you know, this was, after all, a David Cronenberg movie that was an adaptation of a Stephen King book. Of course, it's a horror movie. But then De Laurentiis started getting concerned uh, when the film screened for preview audiences the audiences, they responded very positively to it. It got like a 96% rating from audiences at the preview screenings, but the audiences did seem to view it as more of an earnest drama with supernatural elements than as a straight up horror film, which kind of caused De Laurentiis to rethink his entire marketing strategy for the film. Uh, he, his original trailers had had sold it as a horror film, as more effects heavy. I'm sure that they probably featured you know, the fire scene and things like that. And he felt that, you know, if audiences saw this, they're going to expect a different movie than what they're getting, which I think is a great instinct to have as a producer, to be honest, because how many times have we seen a movie that is not what the trailers have sold, you know, know, regularly. (laughs) Yeah. And these names involved. I mean, you know, you gotta, you gotta try to, be ahead of this as much as you can. Yeah. So he did. He had he had brand new trailers cut, uh, brand new marketing campaign for for the film that would 
kind of less overt in selling the film as a horror film. And what the change worked. Whatever he did, uh, it worked. The film made nearly $21 million at the box office on a budget of somewhere between $7 and $10 million, depending on where you read it. Uh, that's 10 times what Videodrome made at the box office, nice. if you think about it that way. It was, at the time of its release, the most financially successful Cronenberg film so far. It actually still ranks as his fourth highest grossing film overall. Eastern Promises is number one uh, at this point. Uh, and then ahead of this, I think you've got probably... I'm sorry, History of Violence is number one. Then you've got Eastern Promises and The Fly and then this. Mm. Critical response was pretty favorable as well. There were some mixed notices for sure, but there were also some excellent, some very positive reviews from some of the country's top critics, including Roger Ebert, who's been a little hit or miss on Cronenberg so far. Uh, But he gave this a very positive review. I think he gave it three and a half out of four stars, if I remember right. Uh, Some Cronenberg purists thought that he had... stepped a little too far from the kinds of films that he'd become known for. He had gone Hollywood, you know, some of them thought, uh, and there were some Stephen King purists who felt that he'd strayed too far from the source material. Uh, but overall the film was pretty well liked by audiences and critics alike. Well, think about, so, I mean, we just talked about the inflation calculator. I mean, yeah. and it was like over four times as much money. So it's like a hundred million dollar movie, right? You know, essentially, I don't know. And that just blows my mind just hearing you talk about it. And based on what we talked about earlier, I'm like, yeah, shit. (laughs) It was a huge hit. A lot of money. Twenty one million dollars in 1983 box office dollars is a lot of money. Yeah, it it really is. And uh, so what has happened at this point, you know, Cronenberg's been trying to break into the mainstream. And after making what's probably his weirdest movie with Videodrome, at least weirdest so far. Uh, he makes a couple down the line that might be a little bit weirder than Videodrome, but uh, so far Videodrome is definitely his weirdest. And then he immediately goes into what is certainly his most or one of the most mainstream films that he would ever make in his entire career. Uh, But, you know, modern audiences might have a different view of this. I think that overall it's pretty well liked, but I'm sure there's some people out there who um, have some, you know, have something negative to say about this one. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, this movie's a, a little long. And uh, so maybe some people just uh, stayed up past their bedtime to watch it. And, and it sounds like they did. And they now need a nap. That was a reach. I get it. No, that's okay. <laughs> the movie's not even that long. I really, it's like a normal length movie. It's like an hour and 45 minutes. Maybe long. it feels long to them, Justin. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> nice. Well done. I can't, be- well I can't done. believe we're still laughing at that's what she said jokes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'll do this as per Todd's request. Uh, Justin also <laughs> sent me some uh, stuff this time, which is weird because we both have letterbox and I definitely didn't see these, which is. Yeah, these these kind of stood out to me and I thought that they might be fun. <laughs> I don't think I have them. It's just weird to me. Like it's because I feel like I scrolled through all of Letterbox. Uh, I also go through IMDb and Amazon and just see what, what users out there on the internet have something. But uh, here we go. This is from the IMDb. Only a few minutes into this movie, I started feeling uneasy about the movie. It was not well done. It was even far below average, but a walking fan as I am, I kept watching Nothing turned to the better, though. It just turned to the worse. 
not even walking the best among actors could make this movie bearable that is what that person I like that nice. I like thinking of that review from as being written by Christopher Walken because <laughs> like, it does it does shit on the movie but continuously praises him and I, I like to think that he's writing that about himself <laughs> uh, this review is from Suzanne she says worst movie I've seen in quite some time the acting is revolting script horrible do yourself a favor and stay away from this movie <laughs> Jose says the movie was very good. I really like Christopher Walken. Can't stomach left wing wing nut Martin Sheen. I can read between the lines. This movie's from 1983. I saw it recently. I see very silly and unnecessary jabs at Reagan. Luckily, Reagan was the best president this country has ever had. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> the movie starts off great with walking, being this teacher, crashing his car, falling into a coma, waking up after five years and seeing and feeling things from the past, present, and then later the future. Needless to say, it, it makes me happy knowing that people at this time and era were and are wrong about Reagan. He ended up... He ended the Cold War, and the only danger was from the USSR. Sadly, this film, which has so much potential, messes up by introducing a small political anti-missile agenda in there towards the end, no matter how subtle. In my mind, it is propaganda and made a good movie like The Dead Zone Week. Which reminds me of Stephen King's movie *The Mist*, which later on also messed up the end. That that review is filled with bad opinions, <laughs> <laughs> of various. But also the thing about him talking so much about the, that is that this book was written two years before Ronald Reagan was elected president. So the, and all of that shit about Greg Stilson is in the book. Not only that, but in the book, there's actually a joke where. Uh, Johnny Smith predicts that Ronald Reagan will never become president, which of course he was wrong about, or Stephen King was wrong about, but that's actually a moment in the book, like where, where they, because he was governor of California at the time, where they actually, uh, Stephen King via Johnny Smith predicts that there's no way anyone would ever vote Reagan into presidency. So I don't see how that could possibly be any sort of commentary on <laughs> Ronald Reagan. Uh, man, talk about projecting. <laughs> uh, this this review is from Letterboxd. It's, it's from a person named Peach Out. Christopher Walken ended authoritarianism. The whole <laughs> review? <laughs> Thanks, That's Chris. what she said. I don't know. <laughs> McMahon 96 says, I have a strange compulsion to watch all Stephen King adaptations, despite, A, I don't like any of his film adaptations. And B, I don't like any of his books. I just want to be included. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, this is getting harder to do. I feel like I'm becoming a parody of my parody. You don't, you don't I mean, you don't have to continue <laughs> at, at the end of this next one. 
way to beat and then under your breath call him a putz <laughs> that works this next review is from maria she says hmm, nah this is not for me i thought i loved cronenberg and after watching videodrome i don't know every single movie i've watched from him is a little more disappointing than the other except naked lunch and that one with the two brothers putz <laughs> all right all right i'm gonna stop chris for walking for a minute i like this one from jack of heart what a half stars better than predator i guess worse than johnny mnemonic <laughs> <laughs> wow i don't even know i don't even have a response to that i don't know what you say to that um, this one made me laugh out loud and my wife made me read it to her that she didn't get it but Maybe you guys will appreciate it more. <laughs> uh, this is from John. Uh, one and a half stars. The filmic equivalent of a limp-wristed handshake. Cronenberg's Dead Zone adaptation. Butcher's King's marvelously paced novel with all the grace of Christopher Reeve navigating an assault course. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> wow. Yikes. Yikes. That was offensive. <laughs> wow. We do not condone such language here on Cinema Shock. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I did. Wow. I was like, wow. This savage. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then here's the one Justin sent me. This is from Jeff. He says, what a boring fucking movie and a boring fucking book. I actually read the fucking book and it was a long one and it was fucking boring. And then I saw the movie and it was also really fucking boring, except for Christopher Walken. <laughs> <laughs> that one was written by Christopher Walken. I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Here's, uh, here's, it doesn't matter. Uh, one star, the movie just sucks all around. I can't believe the script is based on a book by one of the most celebrated horror authors. It's as lazy and amateurish as a high school student film. Three acts with three simple, almost bedtime stories. No connection between them. No inner logic whatsoever. People in this movie act and talk as if they're four-year-olds. It's pretty creepy in its attitude towards kids. Like Bill Cosby creepy. Not horror movie creepy. I don't even know what that means. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and finally, we'll, we'll finish with Christopher Walken. Uh, <laughs> this is from Eli. This review is from Eli. It gives it one star. He says, I didn't finish this because I got too bored and Christopher Walken scares me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And I should. <laughs> Oh, so it wasn't universally beloved or isn't these days, I guess. But, you know, it is, um, I think it's widely considered one of the, the uh, one of the, the better Stephen King adaptations, even to this day. I think it's a really good movie myself. Uh, and I, I do think it's probably Cronenberg's most commercial film, at least up to this point, it's definitely his most commercial film. Uh, there could be an argument, I think, later on for, uh, for like, Eastern Promises and History of Violence, maybe. But I think this is one of his more commercial films. But I, I know that, Gary, you said you've seen this, but it's been a few years. Todd, was this a first-time viewing, or was this a 
this was a first time viewing and yeah. I really enjoyed it. It's, you, I, uh, I thought you might like this one a little bit better. Uh, this just seemed a little bit more up your alley than maybe Videodrome <laughs> to me. Yeah. 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 I, I kind Sometimes of you surprise the, me though. So who knows? Yeah. No, the, yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I tend to be uh, a bit of a wild card, but wild yeah, card. it's, uh, it's definitely it, fun. Funnily enough, it made me want to go read the book. Yeah. Which is rare for me. Yeah, Todd, um, I, I mean, you famously don't know how to read. So that's true. That's true. <laughs> I, I <laughs> which is impressive because all of my stand up comedy is actually done with stick figures. And I yeah. just sort of describe it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, but this actually did want to make me want to you know, visit the source material and, you know, dive into it a little bit more. It was really good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. It's an excellent book. I I've been, uh, it actually made me want to revisit the book because it's been quite a few years since I read it. Uh, but Gary, what did you think watching it after many years? I think the movie's okay. Um, I don't, um, I don't love it. Uh, I think it's, I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to have it. I think it's, I can see where some people would feel like it's, uh, I don't know. It feels like it, it feels more uh, like it should be in well, it should be like a TV series, honestly, like uh, what a lot of people have thought. Like it, it feels like there's a lot of different stories like shoved into this one movie. So I feel like it never gives enough depth to any one uh, section of it. I don't think it's bad by any means. I think it's pretty good. But I, I honestly would say like three and a half four stars maybe if this were a movie that you were watching having no prior knowledge of david cronenberg or his his filmography what what would that tell you like what would that make you compelled to watch his other stuff or does it or does it feel to you like a little bit more of a journeyman director it feels like more of a journeyman director to me like i I don't feel like there's anything that stands out uh necessarily that yeah, there's nothing I don't, wrong I don't, with journeyman directors, by the way. It's just that some people have a distinct style and some. I would never know this material. Was, yeah, I don't I don't know that I would know this is David Cronenberg. Yeah, because uh, that's a lot of the like the um, a lot of the criticism that I've seen towards it. And like I said before, this movie is pretty well liked overall. But I feel like a lot of the criticism has been that this doesn't feel as much like a Cronenberg movie. Uh, than some of his other stuff, especially the other ones that we've talked about here, which have a lot of kind of signature Cronenbergian elements to them. There's cool stuff. I mean, the aesthetic feels good. It's uh, it's it's not a bad movie at all. Like it's a pretty good movie, but it's uh, like I just don't I don't know. I guess in in the context of the series we're doing, it's definitely not my favorite Cronenberg movie. I think I still lean the Brood. I don't think anything's topped the Brood so far for me. Yeah. Um, and I know, I know that's a weird thing to say. Like, I feel like that's out of the normal, but uh, when we've done like Videodrome, but like even Videodrome, I'm feeling like that's the most Cronenberg movie, but I don't really feel like that's the most Cronenberg movie, honestly. Like, a, I feel like it's the most like excessive on one end Cronenberg movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I see that like how I understand the argument that this is at least at first glance, the least Cronenbergian film of this era uh i almost hesitated when we were planning this series i almost hesitated to include it because it didn't really fit into that body horror dude literally when i finished it the first time um or or this time i mean when i finished it uh i rewatched it like 
in, in the background a few times, but um, one of the first thoughts I had was like, you could have excluded this just almost just as much as you could have like the other one. Uh, yeah. But I also, uh, the, the fast company. Fast uh, company yeah. But yeah. I also feel like this is a major turning point in his career as a commercial artist uh, because it was so successful. It's also one of the, one of the first uh, like early major Stephen King adaptations. So I think it does have a pretty important place in genre film history, which is kind of what we kind of our thing, <laughs> you know, but well, also well, even in, talking in, about it during this episode, finding out it's like a hundred million dollar film, essentially, yeah. you know, I'm like, you can't yeah, overlook yeah. it. Yeah. I was like, this well, is a, this was a big deal. This is well. And also though, watching it like in succession with his other films, I don't think this is any, I think this is as much body horror as Scanners is. Both of those movies are about the power of the mind. Uh, you know, if it were not for the head exploding scene and the la- and the and the kind of makeup effects in that final scene of Scanners, I don't think that that could be considered body horror because it's really about the mind. But in Cronenberg's world, we've said this before, I think on the Scanners episode, uh, the mind and the body aren't separate entities. They're intrinsically linked. For Cronenberg, horror of the mind is body horror because the mind is part of the body, you know? Yeah, I mean, there there's something to be said for, I and, and I'm not, uh, it's, it doesn't, I'm not, what's the words I'm looking for here? It uh, It's not lost on me, uh, the connections to Scanners. I mentioned that earlier. I wonder if that's why he was considered for this movie or like so yeah. first thought of for this movie. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because it, it's a reversal on some of his things. It's actually, I, I had considered that it's opposite. Uh, uh, in the Scanners is your powers uh are used proactively against the world and in this one whereas here they're happening to johnny yeah they're happening to johnny because of his powers uh there's the political aspect of it that i think is still there it just felt like there was there was other stuff i I was i was thinking about with it that oh 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 that i thought it was interesting in this one the doctor that uh brings christopher walken back is like such a good dude and yeah, stays very a good different dude. from doctors and every other Cronenberg yeah i was movie. like cronenberg's normal thing is like these would be the guys that started this whole process well yeah i mean that's kind of like his mo is that like evil scientists causing things to go amok even even uh, all the way up to videodrome this seems like the turning point where scientists or doctors become the main characters of the film because we're going to see that again with Jeff. I mean, not that he's a main character here, but it's more of a transitional thing because you, you go forward and you've got Jeff Goldblum as the, the protagonist of the fly and the even dead ringers, which, you know, of course they're doctors as well. And the main focus of that film. Uh, I, I do also think that you could say that the dead zone isn't horror at all. And I would not argue anyone who said that. I don't, I don't think, think it's really horror. a horror film. But we've said that over the course of this series that a lot of these films that are considered David Cronenberg's body horror films are really more sci-fi than horror. I mean, Scanners especially. Uh, and I think that they only get categorized as horror because of some of their more sensational elements, like the head exploding scene, which makes for a great cover image on the cover of Fangoria, but it doesn't make that a horror movie. Yeah, I, I think Scanners you're right. is a sci-fi movie. The Dead Zone is a sci-fi movie, or I would even call the the Dead Zone a thriller with some supernatural elements. 
Yeah, it's a hundred percent that way. And 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 that's the way he's gonna go. I mean, it's gonna be it, it's hard when you've got movies like Videodrome, and then we're about to talk about the fly, mm-hmm. which for sure just has some wild shit in it. Um, but his tendencies lean more towards this kind of thing. They really do. And yeah. uh, even with, like you said, scanners, it's only really the exploding head that gets you there. But I mean, he's going to go more into like things like Eastern promises or history of violence and uh, even dead ringers. As far as I remember is not, mm-hmm. I mean, they're nothing, nothing's like overtly horror about right. what he does. Well, and I think that that's, that's one of the reasons why it's, it's considered less Cronenbergian than some of his other films. When you compare it to something like Videodrome or even Scanners, it definitely, the dead zone comes across as a little more low key there. It's less sensational. It's, it's more straightforward. And being, I mean, just, you know, flat out, it's a more straightforward narrative and, and more straightforward filmmaking on Cronenberg's part. He's not, he's not trying to be on the cover of Gorehound with this one, you know, even when I talk about the brood, by the way, which is a straight up horror movie, I mean, nothing's like sensational about that movie till the end until she eats the fetus, yeah, Lick, licks the right. fetus, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, but when you view it in the context of other Cronenberg films, which of course is what, what we're doing on this whole series, uh, I do think that you start to see some of his signatures throughout the dead zone, uh, because you know, that you kind of alluded to this, Gary, uh, much like Cameron Bell and Scanners. Johnny's powers have isolated him from the rest of the world. That seems to be a major theme in uh, in Cronenberg's work. We're going to see it again with The Fly, I think. Uh, Johnny's powers have isolated him from the rest of the world, and they become a burden. Uh, they become a curse that drives him away from the life that he knew before his accident. Uh, because before his accident, he was just an average guy. He was an everyman. I think that that's pretty explicit his everyman-ness is very explicit in the name that Stephen King gave him, Johnny Smith, you know, uh, and he appears to be pretty happy. You know, he's got a, a girlfriend, maybe a fiance, you know, uh, he's in love. He's got a job that he seems to enjoy. Uh, I do love, by the way, that he assigns his students the legend of Sleepy Hollow, knowing that, you know, a decade and a half later, he would be the headless horseman for Tim Burton. Oh, I think that's kind of keep, fun. You guys keep stealing my notes. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, in those early scenes of Christopher Walken, of Johnny, he there doesn't seem to be an ounce of cynicism in this guy. Like, he seems genuinely happy. And a lot of that is predicated on Walken's performance. Like, Eve, all those reviews that we read earlier, even the ones that, like, like were shitting on the film, people were still like, yeah, but Christopher Walken's pretty great. And he is. He's really great in that. Uh, I think in the way he plays those early scenes, Gary, you mentioned this before as well, but the way he plays those early scenes, he's very easygoing, very affectionate uh, with, with Sarah, you know, it, it, he's living a comfortable life. But after the wreck, after he awakens from his five-year coma, Walken completely changes how he plays the character, not just physically. In those early scenes, you know, he's got the, the doofus haircut where the hair's down. He's got glasses <laughs> and he's smiling all the time. The but then afterwards... Haircut. It's a, it's a really dumb, it's a really bad haircut. <laughs> but then afterwards, his hair is like, it's the typical Christopher Walken hair. It looks like he just stuck his finger in a light socket, you know, and he's, he looks a little more gaunt, a little more skeletal almost. And 
Uh, he's shaken. He speaks less confidently. He lashes out angrily at people. Uh, he, he has a, reasons to be angry. I mean, you totally understand. But even when he reconnects with Sarah, a lot of the, of the warmth that we see in those earlier scenes is gone. Like this is a guy who's been fundamentally changed, not only by the accident itself, but by the toll that these visions have taken on him, both physically and mentally. And I think that's something that we see a lot in Cronenberg films. So even though on the surface, this doesn't seem like a, Cron a typical Cronenberg film, this, these are things that you see in a lot of his work, I think. And I, I do think this is a phenomenal performance from Christopher Walken. Um, oh, yeah. You know, this is before... Walken had become more of a meme than a man <laughs> that he is now. Uh, this is before, you know, the more Calvo, before all of his numerous appearances on SNL, which are great. Uh, but this is before he kind of became a walking parody of himself. Mm. Uh, this is the Christopher Walken who had just won an Oscar a couple of years prior, you know? Uh, I mean, you do see a little bit of the Christopher Walken that we know now peek out every now and then famously in the, the ice is going to break scene. How's Gary, it going, Gary? If you, if you don't mind. The, the ice is going to break! <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they had that, did more, that more aggressively. It was, that but time. that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but while, while Johnny, he never gets full control of his powers like Cameron Vale does in, in Scanners, there's no ephemeral here to help him keep his visions at bay he still kind of ends up accepting it just like Cameron Vell did and finding a way to do good with them uh, even if no one ever knows and even if it means sacrificing his own life and I think that treatment of the character of Johnny is also a big part of why the dead zone is one of the best Stephen King adaptations uh, I alluded to this at the beginning of the episode but so while, while the shining may always the Shining's always going to probably be my favorite movie based on a Stephen King book. It's my favorite horror movie of all time. I absolutely adore The Shining. That is a great Stanley Kubrick film, not a great Stephen King adaptation. Stephen King fucking hates it. <laughs> he hates what Kubrick did with it. And I get it because it's not, it's not a, it's a very, very loose adaptation of that book. But The Dead Zone's a even though it has to cut stuff out, it captures the essence of Stephen King's book a lot better, I think. And I think that what it does better than most Stephen King adaptations is that it behaves as a character study first and foremost, you know, uh, which is why I think that, you know, I, Gary, you mentioned earlier, Jeffrey Boehm said that Stephen King missed the point of his own book when he wrote his adaptation because he was focusing in his, in his script on the sensational stuff, the Castle Rock Killer stuff, right? But the point of the book and the point of the, what we finally got in the movie is Johnny Smith's growth and his transformation as a, as a person. Uh, a lot of King's stuff, is, even the stuff that was being released around this time, you know, the 1980s, during the kind of the golden age of Stephen King adaptations, they were always in a rush to get to the rabid dogs, the vampires, the fire starting kids, you know, they, they wanted to get to those sensational elements, but King's work has always been very rich in character study. And I think the best Stephen King adaptations tend to do the same, which is why I think something like Mike Flanagan's work does so well is because those are character-based films uh, because he gets what Stephen King's doing. And I think Cronenberg and Boehm, understand Stephen King's work better than a lot of the filmmakers from this time do. 
this is a movie. It's about it's a movie about Johnny Smith. Yeah, it's about a guy who has psychic powers, who uses them to fight evil. But ultimately, it's about a guy who's tormented by those powers, who's learning to accept them and do good with them. Personal consequences be damned. And I think for me, I think that's why this works as a Stephen King adaptation, even if it feels a little bit like an outlier in Cronenberg's filmography. And I, I understand why people see it as an outlier, because, yeah, it. If you look at his filmography, it's right in between Videodrome and The Fly, probably his two most sensational films, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, So I get that. But I do think it's in line with some of the films that Cronenberg would make later in his career. So if you look at his filmography as a whole, this movie does not, it, it does not feel like it's not at home with movies like Spider, A History of Violence, and Eastern Promises, all of which are complex character dramas with a focus more on the psychological, which I think is exactly what The Dead Zone does and now people view Cronenberg as the guy who made these type of movies and they're a little more accepting of him doing that kind of stuff because that's kind of what his career has turned into whereas you know a lot of fans in the early 80s when this came out strictly saw him as the body horror guy mm -hmm. and now of course it, in hindsight we know that he's he's able to do a lot more than that yeah I mean he's he's really proving here that he's a perfectly competent director with anything that you give him uh which is which is great. I mean, David Cronenberg is a fantastic director. Um, I, I, I guess I could just see, I can see people being put off by this movie initially, like when you go in expecting one thing and, and, and you, you cover this with Dino De Laurentiis, like even getting that from the screenings and that sort of thing that he had to, uh, you know, switch gears and adjust his promotion of the movie, which made yeah. perfect sense because I think a lot of people are probably revisiting this movie even in some of the reviews we read where they're revisiting this as like, it's the fly guy. And right. He's, he's making, you know, a Stephen King movie. This is going to get wild. And it, yeah. it's not, it's not like, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty evenly paced movie. I mean, it's good though. I mean, I, I think everything in the movie works. So anything I'm saying is not knocking the movie as like a bad movie because it's right. It's certainly not. And then the vibe and the aesthetic and everything work perfectly. Uh David Cronenberg is an excellent director. Um and and he's just proving that he's more than what his reputation is. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I guess we you know we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Dead Zone TV series here. Uh Gary mentioned it a little bit earlier, I think. But uh, and, and you also mentioned that this kind of feels like it should be a TV series, but uh, because it is episodic and the, the series wasn't exactly a remake of the film. It was more of like a, a based on the novel and readaptation of the novel. But it starred Anthony Michael Hall as Johnny Smith uh, aired on the USA Network from 2002 to uh, 2007, airing a total of 80 episodes before being canceled after a big cliffhanger finale at the end of its sixth season. Wow. And uh, I don't think they ever, ever rectified that. There was talk of them doing like a wrap up movie or something, but that never happened. So, um, but it was pretty popular more, more, it ran for much longer than I would expect it to, you know, but uh, th th there's been talk of remakes of this over the years. Like there have been on almost all of these movies that we've talked about uh, on this series so far. Uh, one thing we haven't really talked about much in detail on this series up to now is David Cronenberg's acting career, other than Todd mentioning the Star Trek thing every other episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> most of his acting roles have been pretty small and consist of just cameos, especially in his own films where he's often uncredited if he appears at all 
Uh, although he has had some bigger roles in recent years, uh, especially on television, you know, we mentioned Star Trek, but he was also on Slasher last year. I think Gary, you watched Slasher, didn't you? Oh yeah, yeah. I love the Slasher series. I think yeah. I think it's great. But yeah, he has a he has a big role in the most recent season. Yeah, he was on Alias Grace for several episodes a couple years back. Um, he was on Alias. I remember him being on Alias for a couple episode run back in the day. You know, uh, his biggest roles in feature films are probably in Jason X and Nightbreed. I would say I did see him in To Die For Gus Van Sant's To Die For. I, I rewatched that recently. He's in there. Uh, but aside from a small blink and you'll miss it cameo in Shivers, uh, where he plays just one of the like infected people in a scene, uh, I think just because they needed extra people, they did more extras. Uh, the first time we really see Cronenberg on screen and the first time we hear his voice is in a feature film uh, from 1985 called Into the Night, directed by his friend John Landis. So in this film, Cronenberg plays a supervisor of a group of aerospace engineers. I think it's fitting that Cronenberg would play a scientist in his first on-screen role since uh, scientists have been, and science itself has been such a big part of his work. And he just has that vibe. I think he plays like a, he plays a scientist or a doctor of some sort in most roles where he's got a, a yeah. significant part. Uh, and th this is a movie that I was not very familiar with uh, as part of John Landis's filmography, but Cronenberg, uh, if you look it up, he is one of many, many very strange cameos in the film, which also features scenes starring Dan Aykroyd, Rick Baker, uh, Paul Bartel, who was a part of the, the whole Cronen, or excuse me, part of the whole Roger Corman camp. Uh, director Don Siegel, who did Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original. Uh, Carl Perkins, that like the Carl Perkins, Blue Suede Shoes, Carl Perkins. Nice. Uh, Jim Henson has a cameo oh, wow. in it. Uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon director Jack Arnold. Barbarella director Roger Vadim. And Pirate Strikes Back writer Lawrence Kasdan. Silence of the Lambs director Jonathan Demme. Jaws screenwriter Carl Gottlieb. And David Bowie, who plays a knife-wielding assassin. Uh, and I really want to make watch this movie just based on that list of names because that's so bizarre to me. But the stars of the film are Michelle Pfeiffer and Jeff Goldblum, which, of course, is significant since this is where Cronenberg first came into contact with Goldblum. Goldblum would, of course, uh, wind up starring in Cronenberg's next film, possibly his most popular film, which is going to be the subject of our final episode in this David Cronenberg series on uh, our next episode two weeks from now we're wrapping things up on the new flesh with the ultimate body horror film david cronenberg's the fly Woo! we've all seen this one i think yeah. uh, it's, it's definitely his most well-known film i would say this and uh, i guess history of violence are probably his most well-known films but it is like the culmination of the body horror genre I think so. It's, it seems like a good one to wrap up on. So we'll be talking about that on our next episode. Uh, you can find it to stream online, head to cinemashock.net. If you want a link to all the places you can stream that you can also find, of course, all of our episode archives on there, links to our merch, links to our discord, everything else you want to know about the show is there on our website at cinemashock.net. Where can you gentlemen be found on the internet? If you like Star Trek, check out my podcast, The Computer Resume Podcast, where we cover the entire franchise in chronological order with a rotating panel of comedians, podcasters, actors, authors, and occasionally Star Trek alum. Available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at Computer Resume. And if you find and you can find me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and DD Beyond. I, I'm at this is Gary Horn. 
<laughs> you don't have a whole you don't have a whole speech rehearsed. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you can find me there and, and get the rest. <laughs> I am at Justin underscore Bishop, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. And you can find the show at cinema underscore shop on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And we're also on Facebook. We're on Discord, all that stuff. Uh, until next time. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. What do you want to know? Do you want to you know the future? You want to know if you have the keys? Is that it? You have the keys. I have the keys. You want to know if you're going to have the keys tomorrow. Is that right? You want to know why your sister took the keys herself. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Of all the times that somebody says Johnny in this movie. I know. No, he left your out wrap Johnny. Up, your wrap-up doesn't even use the word Johnny. I know. Wow. <laughs> Todd, you well, continue to wild card, guys. and surprise. <laughs> it's true. I keep it fresh, fellas. I keep it fresh. So um, just before we wrap up, I did uh, jot down a few things. And we did mention them briefly, but since you guys have already mentioned them, I'll just read them as uh, Christopher Walken. <clears throat> In a movie, uh, predicting the future, this movie does it twice. 16 years after his character assigned The Legend of Sleepy Hollow to his students, Christopher Walken would be cast to play the Hessian Horseman. In 1999's Sleepy Hollow with director Tim Burton. That same year, we would also see Martin Sheen begin one of his most notable roles as President Josiah Bartlett and Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing. From 1999 to 2006, for a total of 155 episodes, for which he won the Golden Globe, three SAG Awards, and was nominated for six Primetime Emmys. And scene. and scene. I'm, I'm going to need our listeners to vote on who does the better walking impression. <laughs> so that's that's going to be a poll. That's going to be a poll online on our uh, Twitter nice. or Instagram feed at some point after this episode drops. <laughs> For anybody who is uh, curious, if you were disappointed that you never got the full reading of The Raven by Christopher Walken, you can get that on a uh, double CD album uh, called Closed on the Account of Rabies. Uh, it's one of the many produced by Hal Wilner. Uh, Are you serious? Is that a real yeah, thing? It's an Edgar Allan Poe tribute. Oh my God. I'm pretty sure it's also just on YouTube. Um, <laughs> no, no, it was a double CD release. No, it no, was... but I mean, you can find him doing The Raven on YouTube. Oh, yeah, yeah. By yeah, that maybe. recording. But yeah. this has uh, a lot of Edgar Allan Poe read by people. Yeah. Marianne Faithful's on here. Iggy Pop. Uh, wow. Jeff Buckley. This actually ended up being dedicated to Jeff Buckley and Allen Ginsberg, I think. Um, Debbie Harry forms uh, the city in the sea what's the name uh, of the album gabriel Byrne does the mask of the red death wow. uh it's called uh closed on the account of rabies all right i'm gonna find that it's from 1997 but yeah also on that album is uh christopher walken reading the raven nice i love it also uh the raven again and this too is read by abel ferrara so that's very strange 
<laughs> you can stop recording now, Gary. I won't. <laughs> <laughs>